everyone, Gomer here, and I am coming at you with a new and special episode of Catching Foxes. I actually recorded this over maybe around two months ago. Yes, definitely two months ago. Father Fletcher, who is the pastoral administrator of Presentation of the Lord Catholic Church, which is a church of the ordinary to the chair of St. Peter, he sat down with me and Brian Jones, the occasional co-host. We sat down in my house, and here's the deal. This was the first time I had my new recording equipment because my old thing that I used to use with Luke for five years just totally died. So I bought this mega beast to record live shows really, really well, and I didn't know how to use it, and I turned the noise gate feature too high. They sound great, but it would clip my audio all the time. Drove me nuts. So I have spent about 25 hours editing this show. I have never edited a show more in my life. It has been epic. So I really wanted to get this show out, so I'm going to try to release it. Yes, I'm, I'm actually not fully finished with it. I'm recording this, not fully finished with it, standard Catching Foxes style. I'm going to try, try to release it as one standalone three-hour and like ten-minute show. And if that doesn't work, I'll be sad, but I'll release it in two special episodes. So if you queue up Catching Foxes right now and you see it's an hour and a half or something like that, then you know I failed and couldn't do it all as one show and upload it to our hosting thingy, Bobber. So here it goes. Here it goes. Thanks to our friends over at BetterHelp.com. We all love them. H-E-L-P, BetterHelp, for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. I'm telling you, I have not mentioned that every single time I go to church. A presentation. What's that? I have not mentioned to anyone the need for AV. I have not. I've restrained. Brian taught me to restrain well, maybe myself. Maybe A, can... but no V. <laughs> yeah, we no can v. have Father Fletcher give a theology. There, there, there are theological problems actually with yep. the microphone. Um, the the one exception being the homily. I think uh, the the homily is directed towards the people. If you can't hear the homily, then like, what's the point of preaching if you can't hear it? Yeah, right. sure. Um, what about the readings? Yeah, the readings aren't directed towards the people either. The readings are directed towards God. They're they're part of the liturgical act. They're not directed to the people? No, that's that's one of the worst things that's happened in the life of the church since the... Dad, he proclaims right at me. Yeah. <laughs> Brian's yeah. father-in-law, but he's just yeah. soft-spoken. Yeah, he for now. looks right he, at he you. He stares at me the whole yeah. time. He's like, yes. here we go. Uh, yes, this, this, is, is, this is actually, this is actually uh, a pretty serious, in my opinion, a pretty serious liturgical problem that we have in the life of the church. Okay. Um, Good segue. Uh, See? Yeah, I don't want, I don't know if I want this part to be on the... Uh, <laughs> we might take this part out. Um, because we... we we introduced didacticism into the liturgy yeah. when, we, when we changed it. I, mean, I, I, I hesitate to even say reformed. Uh, we changed it. Yeah. Uh, that's a more honest word. Well, Pope Paul VI called it a novel. And what, what was the phrase from his 69 letter to the Italian? Oh, I the can't letter? I mean, he basically said it was novel, it was new, and we're getting rid of the old. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So, and they were yeah. honest about it. I mean, if you go back and read what was actually said and done, I mean, it's an honest assessment. And then, and then there was a kind of papering over period. Um, which, you know, the dates are not for me to decide that, but there certainly was a, no, 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 it, it, no, it wasn't like that. And now we're, you know, the scholarly output is enough that you can't really deny it again. Um, but what, but what happened overall, in my opinion, was a change of the idea of what liturgy was in general. Um, and rather than a part, actually part of the sacred tradition itself that was to be received and passed down ceaselessly, it became uh, a mere form, uh, which is which was the way that uh, that that abstracting of it was the way the modern mind actually was working in all kinds of ways. That you could abstract these principles out, right? You could find, uh, and this was happening. I mean, I'm sure you guys know this, right? It was happening in everything. It's happening in the Bible. You know, b- biblical studies was way ahead. biblical studies was in the 19th century and all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they they came up with. I mean, the crazy, you know. This is, this is the craziest stuff when you start doing 19th century biblical studies stuff. Like, what, who came up with these ideas? You know, Germans. That, 
Yeah, well, it Germans was, it was, all across it was, the board. It was all Germans. That's true. Chesson uh, has that line. What was it? There was nothing so wild. Wait, uh, the Book of Revelation has wild monsters, but nothing. But he can imagine nothing so wild as commentators. <laughs> <laughs> the German. Uh, yes, the German. I mean, they, they came up with these really, you know, sort of extraordinarily. They, they hated the allegorical reading of scripture, right? It was funny. They hated it. And they came up with allegories that are even more fanciful, right? So the the big one in the Pentateuch is the JD, uh, JEDP thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's these four documents, these four sources, and you just describe one to each, you know, and this, then it has its own. I mean, there's books written. It's crazy to me. There's books written on the theology of the J document, of the mm-hmm. E document. You know what that is, Brian? Uh, yeah, I remember learning about it. In, uh, I think we went through it with uh, in Bergman's class. Yeah, uh, just for people who are listening and don't know, J-E-D-P. So J is the German for Yahwist. Yahwist. It's like a Jawa. It's a Star Wars thing. Uh, so every time <laughs> Yahweh is used as the covenantal name, that's viewed as uh, uh, a later uh, edition. And then there's the Elois, which is viewed as the earlier, which is El, Elois, meaning God in a generic term, El. <clears throat> and then, so Elois, Yahwist, and then P is the priestly. So then when the priestly corruption took over, uh, I don't want to say that out loud in front of good father here, uh, <laughs> but the priestly corruption came in. And then the D is funny. It's just Deuteronomy. It's Deuter- Deuteronomist. Yeah. So, which the Deuteronomistic history covers essentially all of the kingdom until Christ. Those aren't like the four temperaments. The yeah, yeah, the four. So it's sleepy. Right. Uh, uh, right, right. But yeah, I mean, it's funny because like I hated that, and I remember Doctor Hahn talking about that, and he's like, "I have to introduce this to you because this is the this is the brunt of modern scholarship." And then he said, "And while it is helpful as a theory, <clears throat> it is utterly unsupported." And you start to hear this, and then you start reading. Like Father William Most was very yeah. he was a loud critic on it, and he was like, "There there are reasons for using different names for God." that don't necessarily imply radically different authors, time right. periods, agendas. So, Well, yeah. so the, the deeper, in my opinion, the deeper issue on all that is who cares, <laughs> actually. Right. Uh, so, yes, there, there's good reasons to use different names for God, which we all do in different contexts, and, and, and that the Old Testament has, uh, you know, 25 or 50 different contexts, which it never, like, bothers to tell you, hey, we're switching contexts. It, yeah. it, just, it, just, it just does. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But at the, at the deeper issue is even if we found out that there were four sources from which the the five books of the Pentateuch were written, well, what does that matter? Uh, there still are, uh, this is actually the point, is that they still are a single source, uh, which is part of the tradition, which actually are properly uh, and, and rightly explicated through the, the liturgical life of the church, that they are, they are first and foremost liturgical documents and not didactical documents. Uh, and, but but the, the moving of them out as, as their primary mode is to tell you to tell you bits of information um, is is actually to remove it from the the fundamental relationship that that people have with God, which is an act of worship, and so so the, so the track back to the the point about the readings in the mass, uh, the readings are not to give you um, little bits of information; they're actually to provide the context for the celebration which we are celebrating, which which is a particular aspect of the mystery of God, um, and so they they are to, they are for the people, but they are not to the people. In fact, r- rather than um, and, and we know this, and actually we know this by what we do, which is that we, uh, at the end of every reading, which is how we find out what the Bible is, by the way. How do we find out what, what is the Bible? The Bible is the word of the Lord. Well, how do you know what the word of the Lord is? Because the church tells you in the mass what the word of the Lord is. Um, and, and what does that do? That it, it elicits an act of praise. That's, that's, that's what it is. And so actually it's every reading at mass is a thank offering to God for communicating himself to us, uh, first mm-hmm. and foremost. 
um, that it's a it's a doxological act first and foremost rather than a didactic act, mm. um, and that if you highlight the didactic element, which is what we do. I mean, that's we put a podium. I mean, it's just like you know, it's like a classroom. We put a podium out. We direct it towards the people. So it's easy to think that, uh, but but actually, if we look at the liturgical traditions, both in the East and the West, uh, either either one in the long history, that was that that was not the case. Um, uh, and you, know, you look in the traditional missals, um, the the missals, of course, the, the the Roman missals, all the way up until the contemporary one, uh, the readings are in the mat. They're in the missal. They, they, they're part of the mat. You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, they're right. part of the mass. It's not a separate thing called the lectionary. Yeah, that's right. Right, right. That's right. Uh, and so that, that's actually a clue to us. Oh, that that's this is what is. And the, they were all in Latin. That's yes. Like that's I used to go true. to Latin mass, yep. and they would read it in Latin, and I was like, "Well, I got a lot out of that." And then well, you yeah. sit down, you stand up for the gospel in Latin, you sit, and then you do it all over again in the vernacular. Yeah, and so yeah, and so you know, a lot of Latin mass parishes they do that, right? So they'll come back and read again in English. So for, for your for, for the congregation's sake, uh, but the the point of reading it, uh, and and people act like you know no one understands. Well, yeah, but you know that wasn't any different than nineteenth century or the seventeenth century or the fourteenth century. I mean. Uh, you look at England uh, in the time of the Reformation. English was was the language uh, that was spoken to some degree. French was spoken. Latin was not spoken anywhere. But lots of people, you know, we have to be very careful about these matters. You know, I, I of course I've only been a Catholic for like two weeks, but I sometimes, I sometimes <laughs> feel like I hear Protestants speaking. They're like, you know, the, has, the these things need to be in the vernacular. Like, well, you know, English Catholics, which I you know hope to be representing to some degree, uh, died for the Latin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, which no one was speaking as a as a everyday vernacular language in in 16th century England, um, and and there so there's a loss there in my opinion of why, why are those things uh, the way they are, um, and so no the readings uh, in the fir- in the first in the very first instance are are not there uh, for the uh, for the didactic use of the people, uh, they're there to praise God, um, and that um, that there is there is always elements of learning and of catechesis that happen through that. But, you know, I, I've actually tried this a couple of times at mass at the end, you know, people will say something about some element, you know, in the reading, or, you know, at our church, right. It's, there's babies screaming the entire time. And, <laughs> I have and, no idea what you're talking and about. And so, uh, uh, well, I, you don't have any idea because it, it overwhelms you so much that you just can't even, <laughs> it's not right. possible. It's <laughs> not possible. I am in the center of God's will for my life. Well, that's right. That's I exactly. can hear and feel nothing. Yes, sir. Yes. It's not a sensory deprivation tank. It's a sensory overwhelming tank. Celine is hurting my ears. There's Some, a little kid yelled out from the back of the church at the 930 mass last week. Sit down. <laughs> and I go, oh, is that Celine? Because Celine says that every time I go over, she yells at me to stay quiet and sit down. And uh, it was not. Thank you for the instruction. (laughs) She's been more wondering where Father Fletcher is. You know, it's funny. She's actually a a commentator (laughs) in the mass. With with the microphone. I said, sit down. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, I asked people, well, well, what what were the, what was the first reading today? You like to quiz people? Yeah, I do. I like to ask, what was the first reading today? No, no one knows. (laughs) I don't know. I some, some Sundays I celebrate mass three times. I, you know, I, I, don't, I preach. I preach on it half the time, uh, and, and so you know, it, it, there's a, there's a basic anthropological question, in my opinion. Uh, what do you think human nature is actually like? Do you think that by one reading um, that lasts for I don't know. I mean, what do you think the average reading lasts? You think it lasts that long? I think two minutes, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, so like, probably you read something out for two minutes. How many people and, and how many people are going to actually remember it? Change. I think it's changing everyone's life. 
Yeah. More than your 20 minute homily, I'll tell you that. Hey, watch out now. Watch out now. I could preach the same 20 minute homily and it'd be new because you can't hear most of it. <laughs> the same thing twice. I, yeah, that's right. I heard, oh, uh, that was good. I heard the first five minutes the first time, the second five minutes the, <laughs> well, the second time. Well, the, the, kid, the kid comment to, to derail us a little bit the Christmas Eve yeah. midnight mass. Uh, was it was so bizarre to hear you preach because it was dead, <laughs> dead silent. Yeah, all the I mean, were, it was we're drunk with whiskey in the pews. Yeah, I mean, it was. Only, I mean, there were people kind of like, really? Is this what he's really? Is this what his voice sounds like? <laughs> was, I didn't know he was from Oklahoma. The choir, <laughs> yeah. the choir. Like, you can hear the choir. That's why we have to have twenty people in the yeah, choir that's, right, that's to, right. to try to fight against the children's choir. We have a children's choir at every mass. Yeah, that's, so, uh, yeah we do. Yeah, but you know, that, that, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. Like, do, do we really expect someone? Of two minutes worth of reading to be like, oh, wow, I'm like, I'm changed by that. And now let's take a moment to talk to our friends over at BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include fatigue, lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, and more. Now, let's be honest. Many of us have been there, especially in the last two years. So what we need to do is recognize that maybe, just maybe, our lack of motivation is it because we aren't getting enough cardio. And <laughs> it might be because we are, in fact, burned out. We often associate burnout with work, but that's not the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feeling burned out and better help H-E-L-P online therapy wants to remind you to prioritize your own mental and emotional health. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. If this is you, if you feel trapped in your life in any way, I would wholeheartedly recommend you getting personal counseling. Therapy can help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 24 hours. Catching Foxes listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Foxes. Thanks to our friends over at BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. No, but so here's the deal with the Latin mass. And where I think you're going with this, we are brought up in a tradition in a, in, since the 60s. How are you trained in the Novus Ordo in going to Mass? Is, hey, before you go, read the readings. Catholic bingo, like, uh, you know, uh, Joshua 12, 1, bingo. Right? So it's like you want to know what it is when you're going in. If you know the gospel of the day, you know the first reading, mm-hmm. then you, you'll, you'll get a surprise with St. Paul in the middle because it doesn't really fit, but who cares? Except for rare circumstances or feast days. But then no, you'll I, get the call. I, I weave them together all the time. Yep. You can, but they're not necessarily structured oh, no. that way. I get, I get, I get them all the time. <laughs> you, you, plow, you plow through. <laughs> but uh, like the call, then the collect mostly comes from the gospel, and so uh, or the themes and the, and so you can like start to participate in the mass by piecing it all together as a layperson, yeah. right? Yeah. So that so the didactic side is really all we know. Yeah. In terms of, and I think this also goes to why it throws so many people off when the priest turns his back, quote unquote, to the people, is because you see the mode of a teacher and you enter into the mode of, of a, mm-hmm. of a pontifex, right? Yeah. Right. As, a, as an intercessor, whatever, a mediator. And so the idea is, I don't get that. I don't get why you're like in the Latin mass, why everyone's quiet, why the 12 women in the front are praying the rosary, you know, praying the rosary in America, they prayed it quietly in a lot of other countries. They prayed at a full volume. Um, that, I mean, that that's part of the thing. And so I was, I, when I went to the Latin mass as a high school student in North Tulsa, Good old Father James Jackson. Uh, when I would go there, I would study the readings, and I would try my best to follow along in the missal and 
say the words where the priest was in the mass because I thought that's how you participated in the mass. And then, you know, the other day, me and you were talking, and you said, you know, you should take people to a low Latin mass. The priest doesn't even care if you're there. He doesn't even know if you're there. And I was like, I, this is what I don't understand. What do you do then? What do you mm-hmm. do? You know? Yeah, that's a good, uh, so there, there's there's several things to say. I think. Yeah. And again, this, a lot of this is just my my own my own take on on all these things. I I think that there's there's a really laudable goal that the church has tried to accomplish, which is the the richness of the liturgy itself is is real. The the texts, I, I mean, that's what you're saying. The texts themselves and, and the way they 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 fit as a unit are actually uh, very often very very lovely. Yeah. And there, there's sometimes where it's sort of like, well, why why is this like this, and why does this go, mm. you know, why why are these prayers together? But very often needed a, to find a place for Habakkuk. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, but but like Marian apologetics, you could go to any Marian feast, grab those verses. And yeah, that's right. You that's have an right. Awesome. Scott Hahn has a whole conversion story about that. It's yeah, awesome. That's yeah. right. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, and so there. And so uh, the you know what's, what's called the liturgical movement, though there there were very you know there's lots of there's lots of veins in the liturgical movement. Um, but but generically, what's what's called the liturgical movement is at a basic idea is there that richness ought to be developed and enveloped by the people, uh, you know, by the faithful who who are gathered, not only by the clergy. I think that's pretty good, more than pretty good. I think it's really good. And so that became sort of the dominant idea. At, but at the same time, completely changing the way in which the liturgy was celebrated, and not only the way the way the liturgy was celebrated, but also the texts and and I mean everything, basically everything. The the issue at that though is that not everyone, you know, for better or worse, not everyone's Mike Gormley. So not everyone actually has an interest in like following every every word that the priest is saying. And that doesn't make them a bad Catholic. Uh, right. Well, I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, I'll, I'll be dogmatic on that, I guess. I'll be the one to stand up for the, uh, the person. Like, I'm not doing that. Um, so I had to actually, I'll tell you, I had an interesting conversation with a fellow a couple weeks ago who, who's a Catholic. He's a, he's a bad Catholic at the moment because he doesn't go to Mass. He goes to some you know, or whatever, funny name church. Mm. Uh, in the that you can't tell the difference between whether or not it's a non-denominational church or a head shop that sells marijuana. There it is. There it Elevate. is. Elevate. That's right. Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> there literally is a bit on YouTube where John Christ, who's a non-denom pastor's kid, walks through about 20 names, and the guy is trying to guess whether it's a head shop or a non-denominational <laughs> church. It's actually, one of the funniest awesome. things yeah, I've ever seen. Right. That's exactly right. So he goes to one yeah. of those, right? So he's, he's a baptized Catholic, confirmed Catholic. Mm-hmm. But he goes Stonebridge. He goes the one. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Cutting close to home, uh, and, and so I, I was at a party, a, a kids' party. He, this guy was at. He's a family friend, so you know, he starts chatting me up. You know, has like kind of like wayward Catholics. They see a priest, they want to talk to him, and um, and so he's he's ta- we're actually talking about some of these things. He's sort of interested in this stuff, and and he he just basically asked me about you know being able to understand. You know, if I can't understand, what's the point? And I I said to him, I said if you if you actually believe what you're saying, you the conclusion that you would draw in the end, if you work out your logical entailments, is that you cannot be a Christian if you can't read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he said, "That's right." Yeah. I said, "Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, yeah. wait, wait." Yeah. I said, "Do you know? You know, like the the literacy rate in human history is usually like twenty percent. I mean, we're at a, you know, I mean, where we are a in the world, unique period. In yeah, all where of we are in the world history. right now, and yeah. literacy yeah. rate is unbelievable. It's good, but we can't expect for that to. I mean, you know, Oklahoma's going to take that back soon. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> despite my my mother's best efforts, but uh, but you know, like I mean, he was just willing. He was actually willing to own it. He's willing to say like, if you can't read, you can't be a Christian because you can't read the Bible. Yeah. Well, we're in some danger of thinking like if if like that is what it means for faithful participation at the mass. Mm-hmm. You've like sort of. You sort of like narrowed yourself down into one kind of personality type. 
Uh, and, and lots of people are quite happy to just sit there and, and be, be, be joyful that Jesus Christ is being crucified and raised and ascended and, and communicated to us all in one single act. Uh, of course, there's people like that, and that, yeah. that, they're not at all interested in, in following the readings. And, and you what can't, do you do? What do you do? Well, See, that's well, the thing. That's, is I'm a didactic but guy. You, but that's you. You're smart. Yeah, no, I well, know. That's why I can't understand. You're, you're but, smart. And you got lots of energy. <laughs> you, <laughs> you follow along. You, the thing I is, do. You follow along. I have. Well, I am never not like. Literally, I was thinking, hey, it would be a nice gesture if I bought all new missiles. You know, for the yeah, because yeah. they're all getting worn. Oh, you the know, pew missiles. Stuff. Yeah, the right. pew missiles because. I love me some pew missiles. There is never a time when I'm not like, we're that's not right. in the room again. Ooh, we're in a penitential prayer number two. All right. yeah, that's right. No, and, and what's funny, so what's funny is here I am saying, making this argument, right? But I'm an ordinary priest, and I will tell you that in my own experience that the ordinary draws people who are exactly like that, who want to engage in the liturgy yeah. itself as the liturgy, and, and like that their spiritual life is tied to the, the being in tune with the liturgical act. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, but I don't think I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I think that... Uh, that's my own. I mean, that's that's what drew me personally was uh, the the act of the liturgy was 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 and remains an extremely nourishing thing. You know, it, it's funny. Probably the best confessor I've ever had was an old passionist priest, and I, you know, he was so good as a confessor, and and uh, I probably made more spiritual progress going to him for a year in confession than I have in the rest of my life. But I would go to Mass, and I would have to immediately go to confession because he's like the guy's seven years old and he can't find the preface. You know, he's he's flipping through the missal. All the while, he's saying the Eucharistic prayer because he can't find the page. I'm like, come on, Father. There's ribbons <laughs> and, <laughs> and tabs. Like, it's not that hard. But he had no liturgical – like, like the, the form of the celebration of the yeah. Mass for him had, was of no consequence to him. It is none. But he, was a, he, is, he is. He's, still, he's, a, he's a very good priest. And so there, there, we have to leave room. And, and the, the dominant form, in my opinion, uh, the dominant mentality, I should say, rather than form in the life of the church, is that there's just not very much room for the variety of people. Uh, that actually exist on the earth, and that that's actually that, that's something we need to be concerned about as Catholics is can all personality types actually uh, find, feel like they actually are growing their spiritual life? Um, and uh, so you know, the presentation we try to at least do, you know, we try to do the eight o'clock mass, which is quieter without music and things like that, and then and then of course the other two masses, which last you know for for most of the day each one it's a beautiful uh, thing it's a beautiful thing well this is you know in, in our ongoing conversation so for everyone listening brian here is the uh, very humble coordinator of liturgy and we have had liturgical conversations for so long and this is the thing that our listeners know that i've said a bazillion times but parishes that love orthodoxy in the, within the novus ordo world tend not to care about liturgy but they're very zealous for sacraments mm-hmm. or they love the sacraments they love the eucharist they'll quote every bible verse at you you know they'll quote scott hondia and all that good stuff and the church fathers or whatever but when it comes to liturgy it's still a thing that needs to make me feel good yeah and i'm definitely still there like to me but even though i used to go to a latin parish in um north tulsa and if you know anything about north tulsa it's not a, it's not a nice part of town um but i used to go there small little church and I fell in love with the Latin liturgy, and I didn't know what it was about the Latin liturgy that I loved. But I just loved being there. I loved mm. its ancientness. I loved its quietness. I felt like something real was happening, not something was being done for me. But all I knew to do was to do what I did in any Novus Ordo church. Now, there were a handful of really old women who were kneeling in the front praying the rosary most of the time. But I, but I 
was in the back because I didn't want to look like an idiot and I didn't have nice clothes. And I would sit there and just try to, oh, oh he said, hoke est. Okay, where are we? Mm. Oh, dear, the ring of bells now. Mm. Right? Like, all that stuff. So me, that's the only mode I know, but that's the predominant mode, I think, of the Novus Ordo. And that's one of the big quotes from, uh, I keep referencing this one podcast from Fountain of Carrots, where all three people who are on one of the little rascals is a trash. Spanky. I think. Yeah, it was Spanky. It was Spanky. The, the actor that yeah. played Spanky in the uh, And they're like the nicest 94. human beings on the face of the earth, like the two co-hosts yeah. or, and, and him. And they were talking about it. And he just, part of his thing was like, you just contemplate. Like, the, it, the more you get into the liturgy, the less you worry about the words of the liturgy. And that, to me, is the biggest stumbling block. I'm like, I don't understand what that means. And it takes me back to a conversation I had at Seek with Catching Foxes where this guy came up to me. He's like, where, where do you stand on the liturgy? And I was like, I like it. <laughs> and he just said, uh, he said, you know, like the people today, they don't understand the liturgy. They don't understand that I can go outside in the middle of mass and get a smoke and come right back in. And I've lost nothing of the mystery. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Well, I don't know what that means. Yeah, but in the- partially true, but also partially not true. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, I mean, to go back to Father Fletcher's point, I mean, I think the the liturgical movement in the 20th century, I mean, is is not about changing the liturgy because people don't understand it it's a it, it is about uh, doing more catechesis making um making the the these sort of things um completely and entirely intelligible but to some degree that that to make it so that people can more fully participate but again i think as father fletcher said earlier but that it's a, it's it's a different game now when when things have changed yeah. right the the reform is um as we always joke in the office you know we need to get the reform of the reform of the reforms reformed yeah. you know and, and spanky was saying uh sounds weird saying that out loud but it's absolutely <laughs> let's true. get his real name <laughs> yeah he said in the liturgy today the notion of being a part of the liturgy is doing your part of saying everything praying everything and singing everything and he goes if you're a quiet guy you don't have the like if you just sit there and quiet, you feel like you're you're breaking the rules. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I mean. That's 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 kind of my point is that. But that, I don't know how to not do that. Yeah, well, but that's just you though, right? Like right. that's perfectly fine. Like yeah. I, so, yeah. we we have to actually exist on multiple levels. This is this is. No, people suck. I'm I'm right. Yeah, well, well that's my, I mean, I got you on that. <laughs> well, it's. The, I mean, I'm the same way, right? I'm, yeah. I, I, you know, we. What was it? Uh, I'm, I'm the priest. I do it all. I say, <laughs> and I like doing it. What was Wa's uh, article in uh, 64, 66? Oh, Evelyn Wall. Evelyn Wall. Yeah, I mean, yeah basically, like, basically, we didn't says, ask for this. Yeah, he said. Well, he's not. Said, we didn't ask for this, but he says most people were just happy with the liturgy as it was. Not really, you know, the the mysterious. Maybe we would look at it as an ignorance, and they would just say, "Yeah, I, I like this." There, there are several. I mean, relatively deep anthropological questions about it, in my opinion. Most of which I think John Henry Newman has provides the answer for. But actually, uh, if you if you want to read, uh, if, I, if I knew this is where the conversation was going, I'd have my book out with me. Um, a great, a great book to read from Newman is called Lost and Gain. It's a, it's a slightly autobiographical novel he wrote, like in eighteen forty six or seven. Lost in Lost and Gain. Okay. Uh, and it's set in Oxford, and it's it's about a conver- it's about conversion. Uh, what a guy in Oxford does in, in his conversion, uh, which of course is sort of like is sort of like what happens in Newman. But there's there's a really dramatic moment uh, in the in the book. And in that moment, there's the typical Anglican argument, which is that Anglicanism, uh, Catholicism rather, is Anglicanism just taken a little bit further. That mm. f- fundamentally they're the right. same. So, by the way, by the way, for everyone listening on this, I will, ha- I will happily say this. I don't want this edited <laughs> out. Uh, the, the Alpha Course is that. 
and no one should do Catholic Alpha. <laughs> is that that principle that Catholicism is just some Protestant variety just taken slightly further? Yeah. Uh, wrong, 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 wrong. Catholicism is is different in kind from Protestant from all forms of Protestantism, and so. The principal character in the in the novel uh, goes on this long, beautiful uh, tirade about how about how that's not true, and and he says you think that that what we do in, in worship is just a little more grand than what you do, but it's different altogether, and it's, it's no mere form of words. It's a it's an it's a it's an evocation of the eternal. Uh, I mean, it's worth uh, reading the whole thing. I, if I knew we were going to talk about this, it's it's really worth reading. But but that's because Newman had a sense of what the human person was and therefore the kind of worship that uh, through the Catholic faith that the human person was able to offer to God, which, which is uh, simply uh, qualitatively, not only, not only f- formally, but qualitatively different than uh, what, is, what is otherwise possible. Because, I mean, the Catechism says this very, very clearly, that Christ is the chief actor of the liturgy. Always, Christ is the chief actor, and that we enter into that. So, I mean, you guys know this, that one of the distinctive things at our parish is that Mass starts because by ringing the bells. Mm-hmm. We ring the bells, Mass starts. Well, that, that has a practical uh, element, which is, I mean, stand up, the music's starting. But, but, but we could go and tell you to stand up, but we don't because uh, the, the ringing of the bells is the, is the indication that the angels are present. And that the ringing of the bells uh, to indicate the presence of the angels is also a sign that what we're entering into is angelic activity, which is already happening. So the ringing of the bells is sort of the echo of heaven from the very beginning. It's the echo of the heavenly reality that actually what we are going to participate in right now is already occurring. It's not, it's not something that we have conceived or contrived, but rather it's a gift that we, that we receive and that we enter into and that we participate in. And that's, of course, I mean, you guys have all heard the, the whole thing about the, the angelic references that happen throughout the Mass. I mean, yeah. there's, there's tons of them, mm-hmm. uh, and that we, we never lose sight of that. I mean, that's, the height of that, of course, is in the canon— um, in which we, the priest bends down and asks God to send his holy angel from on high to, to receive the offering and to take it up into heaven. Uh, and that that's, that's what we think happens, is that our, our humble offering, which we transform by, by Christ's words into the body and blood of Christ, is then received into heaven and then, and then is returned to us, mm-hmm. uh, and that we actually are drawn up into, into the heavenly life. That liter- like I, The more I study this, the more excited I get about salvation history, about understanding Scripture, because... Like, Dr. Hahn really was right when he wrote the book, probably his least popular book, which is Letter and Spirit. The whole point of it is to show you that the, the liturgy is where the Bible is read and interpreted, and the Bible was essentially, you could say, canonized, codified, or written for the liturgy in the sense of it's its fullest expression. Because, like, what you just said doesn't, it, it exists in part within the Novus Ordo Mass, right? Like, obviously, the Sanctus and stuff like that. Together with the angels, we say, and the holy, holy, holies, and all that, the glorias, and all that. The fascinating thing is, in the Old Covenant, they believed everything. That's why you don't see the Lord. You hear the angel of the Lord. They believed the covenant itself was mediated by angels. It's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is you have a covenant. We Our old covenant was mediated by angels to Moses and to Elijah and like all these. But ours, in the fullness of time, God said to Jesus, you know, uh, this day I have begotten you. Who does God say that? What angel does God say that to? No, we have a son in place of the angels, right? But what does Jesus say? It's not that then the angels are then discarded, right? He says that you will see the son of man and angels ascending and descending upon him. Well, what does that mean literally? Like if I were to, how did, how is Jesus Jacob's ladder where angels ascend and descend on him literally? Like the book of, uh, or in John chapter six, 
you if you were to see the son of man ascend to where he was before right like he's giving like they're laying out this narrative that jesus is he is jacob's ladder where angels ascend and descend ministering to god's people and ministering within god's holy uh holy uh temple in heaven well it's only within the liturgy that that is literally taking place where he ascend where they ascend and descend in the mystical body of christ right but i mean it's not like just a figure of speech of them ascending and descending because we are, what do the angels take from your earthly altar to the heavenly altar is the very god who was already there in heaven the ascending and the descending well, usually that's cool i've never thought of that almost without fail a presentation in the canon it's <clears throat> the combination of these two things you have uh what is it uh, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven is usually the time when the priest is almost invisible because of the incense. <laughs> yes. The great cloud of unknowing. <laughs> yes, that's right. My sons, I love, we use so much incense that my sons have to take breaks. <laughs> they go outside. I go, just go to the bathroom. They're like, I don't have to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, your eyes are beet red. Just go to the bathroom. You're, you're down to 12 beats per minute. <laughs> Son, you're starting to talk like a smoker. You need to go, what are you it's talking beautiful about? Thing. You know, uh, we, we heard that about the plague, you know, that uh, that incense uh, helps reduce the, yeah. the transmission oh, yeah, yeah. of uh, we're good. We're yeah. golden. We're golden on that. You ever seen Ingmar Bergman's uh, The Seventh Seal? So that, I had to watch it. Is that a movie? Yeah. I've only watch. watched like 10 movies in my adult life. <sighs> I've only watched 10 movies this week. All right. <laughs> All right. Oh, good Lord. Uh, last one was called Snitch with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Anywho, uh, the Black Death has come. The Black Plague has come on Europe. And there's this scene of the penitents entering into a town. And you know about the penitents, right? I mean, they're beating themselves or yeah, flogging yeah, themselves. Yeah, right. But the way he constructs this scene, it is, and this is the scene that we watch, it's bone-chillingly terrifying where it's like this, you don't even see people. It's this cloud of incense coming. And people are whipping themselves and being, and it's, it's this macabre, like, this is pious, but also I think you hate yourself, like, kind of thing all at once. But it's all surrounded in incense. And they're doing penance to try to alleviate the divine curse of the black plague. Oh, the plague? Interesting. And, that's, then killed, that's and then they killed all their cats, which kept the mice away, which it was the rats and the mice that caused that, that did it? Huh. Well, we we have no cats at presentation, though there's rumors. But they'll die soon, the presentation. <laughs> <laughs> they'll die quickly. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, I think for the three of us, too, the uh, – I mean, in our side conversations, I mean, I think the discussions around the, the psychological aspects of, you know, the, the, the content that's given – liturgically that the um you know what what sort of dispositions come and are fostered and through attending mass right and i think um, the twins was talking with a girl what kind of people are we about confession well this girl was talking with one of the twins about confession and um just i said her name but she said one of the twins kept saying oh you're talking about confirmation right she goes no 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 i was talking about confession i'm talking with the priest i was we were i was sitting across from him and she said well, yeah, I looked at, at the, the priest when I was. She goes, no, 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 no. I was in the confession. I was looking directly across from the priest. I was looking at him. He, he, I was, I was confessing my he, sins, was, and she said, and and there was no concept because of the of sitting face to face in the confessional. And so it's those. Now again, is that is that intrinsically disordered? No, but it's a it's those maybe it's those kinds that are. Um, I think what we're concerned about, you know, like we said in the one podcast a few, however long ago, was actually the the liturgical abuse is not as dangerous as a faulty disposition, 
right? A liturgical yeah. abuse can be like, this is going to stop now. I mean, in theory. Yeah. The priest but is if, putting raisins in the Eucharistic bread. Right, right. Or altar bread. But if we're fostering dispositions that are, are deep-seated, that make you come into a beautiful sacred liturgy, and you go, oh, what is that? What is that? Why isn't he facing me? How come Karen's not reading the second reading? There was a guy at St. Anthony's who was really upset. I'm, I'm just really disappointed because, you know, our altar, the predella, you know, the steps and all this stuff, it's narrow, but it sticks out kind of somewhat long. Yes, and so the chairs are arranged in a diagonal, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, it's a giant thumb. Is that yeah, what you're going to yeah, say? Yeah, that's right. It's a thumb. Yeah, it's like a thumb in the middle of the congregation. It's the divine thumb. It's very biblical. <laughs> the divine very imprint. Biblical. <laughs> that same just thumb destroyed Nineveh, so don't talk about it lightly. But uh, no, but there's a slight angle at the priest's chairs. So if you're sitting on the extreme side of the transept, you're going to be behind the priest. And this guy wrote, "You remember? you were rolling your eyes. Oh no, I was like, you're like, is that a water spot on Gormley ceiling? <laughs> oh no, um, you should cover that. Yeah, but no, they said uh, I'm so disappointed that the priest, when he sits down, has his back to part of the congregation. And you're like, he's sitting down. Does it matter? Like he's not. Do, you don't need to." What? You don't need, none of this matters right now, but it forms a context. And that's what, uh, like, I sound like I'm dogging my parish a lot. No, I'm dogging the culture that allows silliness to be esteemed in the mass with the idea of, but this is, people will like it. This is human. This is good. This is a bridge. And I'm like, this is the comment I make to everyone. A bridge to where? You hear this phrase all the time. We'll meet people where they're at. It's like, okay, I meet them where they're at. Do we make three booths? One for Moses, Elijah, and your buddy here? Like, no, we have. It's a biblical illusion, not paper. Anyway, we got to keep. We, it, the bridge has to end somewhere. It's like mere Christianity. We're just hanging out in the hallways. We're hanging out on the bridge. We're not going anywhere because everything is for that next potential person who might not understand if you actually celebrate the Mass the way it's supposed to. And because we're not celebrating the Mass, Father David's argument, and so we had an episode with Father David Huss, his whole thing was we still haven't even seen the Mass of Vatican II. Even at its worst form, we still haven't seen it because it keeps getting adulterated, right? But the idea is, like, the hard thing is the context has become the bridge. But it's not not walking the bridge to a destination. It's just the bridge itself. And so no one knows what the liturgy is anymore. I'm more and more convinced, like, with my questions here, like, I'm frustrated when I talk to a priest who loves the Latin Mass. And they say, it's fine for people to pray the rosary during Mass. You know, they should be praying the sorrowful mysteries. I'm like... Why? Well, because it's the representation of the death of Christ in an unbloody manner. Why not pray the sorrowful mysteries? I'm like, okay, but why not pray the liturgy? And he's like, that's not on them. They don't have to. I'm like, I don't know what to do now with my hands. What do I do with my hands? <laughs> what do I do with my hands? Well, now, to be fair, at presentation, if you're going to pray the, the rosary during Mass, you just pray the joyful mysteries. We're a joyful mystery parish. Oh, you are. Well, that's, yeah. uh, for sure, for sure. We're at the, the, the Feast of the Presentation. You're representing yeah. that fourth mystery. Uh, but but also, you know, the, the sort of the English inheritance of the Incarnation. And uh, and, and I, I uh, and we have Lady Day as an important feast for us. What the mm-hmm. heck is Lady Day? Uh, that's the Annunciation. We call it Lady Day, you know, pretension. Lady Day? Yes, we call it Lady Day. That's the English thing. We call it the Annunciations Lady, Lady Day. Lady Day. Mm-hmm. Brian, you got to be pretty excited about that. <laughs> that's when you get to let your freak come that, That's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's good, pretty elegant, right? Calling it, it Lady Day? It's very, uh, it is very English. And uh, I, I, you know, every priest preaches the same homos over and over again, but one of my best ones is the one on the visitation. Um, mm. My visitation homo is actually very fine. Uh, and uh, so, I've but, never heard it, even though I was at that Mass. Uh, <laughs> that, so, that, that, that joke the, never gets old. We call that a callback. That, that, that joke callback. never gets old because it's like it's so true. It's like God, I wish that wasn't true. It's true. 
Uh, yeah, but but you know, I, I, so I have this conversation with people from time to time about about their obligation in the normal world where there still is the the obligation to go to mass on Sundays. And so, like, well, well, what is that obligation? Well, the church says your obligation is to be at mass. That's the that's like, there's, a, there's a period, mm-hmm. and there's no other there's no other text after that, which means that it doesn't say your obligation is you need to make the responses. Your obligation is yeah. you need to receive holy communion. Your obligation is you need to think the priest is a good performer. Your obligation is to listen to homily. Your obligation is uh, to be in love and charity with your neighbor. Your obligation is no, no it says your obligation is to be a mass. That's your obligation on Sunday. Uh, so that might mean that you're there mostly dozing, which is a lot of people anyway. Uh, and not, not that that's great. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying like this is the height of the spiritual life, but we have to be able to make distinctions between like what what the church actually obliges us to, what the the bare minimums are, and then what we think is better. Um, yeah. And and then also within that, as I was saying earlier, accounting for for really different personality types, because it's just not, you know, uh, like I, I it's a marvel to me, and I, I find this all the time. It, it, it actually shocks me. I'm, I'm 35 years old. I should know better by now. But there are people who aren't competitive. I I can't get over it. You and Michelle. You and Michelle. I can't get over it. Yeah. I can't get over the fact that there's people who don't mind losing. I hate to lose. We might have to talk about the soccer team. Yeah, the 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 Please eternal penance of uh, presentation Catholic Church is the <laughs> soccer team. Uh, yep. I mean, I hate it, but I meet people fairly frequently who don't care. It's just fun. Getting out, getting some exercise, <laughs> get, meeting some friends, get, getting a little cardio, having some fellowship, uh, talk, talking to your friends or whatever. And I'm like, you know, it's a new occasion of sin for me to play to play any competition. Yeah. Man, uh, you're like Doctor uh, Ashy at Franciscan. He was like Mister JP two love marriage. Um, what was the class that he taught? Marriage, Christian marriage, Christian marriage, conjugal act as a personal act. Yes, that was his book. And, and he probably said that phrase a hundred times. But when he got on oh, the yeah. football field. It was nothing but violence oh, and yeah. rage. You could have been an A-plus student in his class. Don't you talk, were nothing don't but the talk next about my, Don't talk about my soccer habits. <laughs> well, you and Michelle, Sam, Almeida. Uh, it's, you uh, you sat yeah, in front yeah, of them. We don't want, yeah. want to. My favorite, my favorite thing about Michelle and her competitiveness is she, Brian is telling me this story. And I'll edit this out if you want, but you nope. ought not. If you want me to edit, it's disordered. <laughs> she said to you, she was trying to get you to do more weight in, like, a CrossFit oh, class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, why? And she's like, well, go. <laughs> like no, why? So I might injure myself, right. you know, whatever. She's like, you're not even doing the women's RX. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true though. Nothing that's true. in my life made me happier than when you told me that story. <laughs> so, so, so yeah. So I, I, I'm extremely competitive, and I love sport. I love sports. Yes. Uh, and it was uh, my dad's. My dad's a high school coach. He's coached everything basically. And uh, did and he coach I, you in high school? Uh, no, actually, he didn't coach me. He, he coached mostly girls, actually. But he could have been my coach. My dad's a, a very magnanimous person. Uh, my he, brother Brian's like that. Yeah, he could have coached me. Um, he, he, yeah, funny thing about my dad, of course, he'll never listen to this, so it's fine, is that once, I'll put it on cassette and uh, <laughs> once he, uh, yeah, he's in rural Oklahoma, so cassettes are still in. Yeah, they're still there. Uh, oh, I know. He, uh, he, he was, somebody asked him, he, so he's coached girls every year. He's, he just finished his 35th year, I guess. Somebody asked me, he said, why do you, why coach girls and not, and not guys? And he said, well, he said, you coach girls, you got to coach emotions. You coach guys, you got to coach egos. He said, and I don't have any emotions. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. That's, like, a, that's uh, a good insight. That's folk wisdom. Uh, Dave Ramsey's going to start quoting That's that. right. So he, uh, anyway, so, you know, that was the world I grew up in. So 
Yeah. So I love it. I love sports. I love competition. I love I love playing games. But there are a lot of people who don't, they don't care at all. Uh, it, it just doesn't tickle them in any way. And, and so, you know, as as central as that is to just the way I think about the world and, and talk about everything, whatever else, I have to leave room for that. And so it has to be the same in terms of people's spiritual lives, too. I think as a priest, you have to, you have to accept that. And if you don't, then then you you you're reducing again you're reducing the liturgy to something less than what it is the liturgy is a public act we forget we forget this distinction all the time it's a public act it's a public act of the church and so people's obligation is to be at that public act their apprehension of that their their engagement with that uh, and all those things are are of a second of a different order than the fact than mm-hmm. the than the public reality now each you know there are various streams within the church um, and and those and so certain spiritualities are encouraged, and those those ebb and flow too. You know, uh, there, there's times when certain kind of spiritual traditions are, are more popular, and when they're less popular, and uh, and so it's perfectly fine that some people really want to be in, like their spiritual life is uh, in what's going on in liturgy. I think that's great. I mean, that's again, that's how mine is. That's that that's what drew me. Um, but there's lots of people for whom that's not the case. I mean, you're you know the guy that you're talking about is. They're there, and they're happy to be there. Or maybe they're not. They're not happy to be there, actually, right? So we actually have to leave. You know, somebody today was talking about somebody who's you know this Catholic person who's really nasty. I'm like, well, Catholics don't have proprietary rights on good manners. I mean, that's mm-hmm. you know, that's not a yeah. like being Catholic doesn't mean that you're like the, the 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 polite person in the room. You have to actually leave room for the person who's like, I hate going to mass. I don't care about this at all, but I know this is my obligation, and I'm going to go. And I'm going to sit in the back row and mostly close my eyes and not say anything. I mean, that's not what I want as a priest for anybody. But if we don't leave room, it's like that's a that's an engagement in the in the active life of, of discipleship. Then we're actually we're you know what's going to happen to those people? They don't come. They don't participate. We we just lose those, we just lose right. those people because we ask everyone to be like me. Exactly. You need to be loud. You need to respond. Yeah. Yeah. And you need to find joy. In and doing tracking that. all the parts. Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. And again, my own, like, so I'm like you. Maybe it's an Oklahoma thing. I don't know. It probably is. We're uh, very didactic. Yeah, well, that ain't right. That's not right. <laughs> no, wait a actually, so wait I, thought, a actually, I thought we were going to start this podcast, like, introducing me. And yeah. like, like, well, no, no. so everyone's going to get a taste of, like, what real Oklahoma's like. Like, dumb, <laughs> inarticulate, slurring their words. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, they think that they hear, they hear right. my, I think we say, like, well, because Hillbilly Thomist is kind of already taken. So we like Hillbilly Augustinian. Is that, can we say that? No, you got to go more British on this. Hillbilly. No, 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 that's too nice. There's no hills where I'm from. Yeah. Now, where he's from, there's some hills. Where I'm from, there's no yeah. hills. There are very few hills in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. There's a few. Are you getting tossed to those hills? You go north of Broken Arrow's hills. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay. Oh, you just got to read Hillbilly Elegy, and then that, that's. Uh, so, actually, you know, I told my, I told my son, uh, my oldest son, he loves Western Oklahoma. He loves Oklahoma. He, huh. he actually, he, he's. Okay. Hilariously, you, you can know this part of it if you want to, but hilariously, one day we're walking around our neighborhood here up in, you know, we live in Houston. And he says, Dad, Texas is fine, but I prefer Oklahoma. <laughs> My man. <laughs> and, I love you, son. And, uh, I love you, son. I said, all right, well, why is that? He said, well, he said, you know, in, in Texas, man, every, you have everything. It's so built up, and, yep. and you have all these kind of things. In Oklahoma, you got hardly anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have soil, you have clay. I said that's true. He said he said it just makes you more grateful for things in Oklahoma. The little that you got, and, and so anyway, so he he has he has a real affection for it. So I taught him and the thing that I you know you learn that in Western Oklahoma, especially uh, Eastern Oklahoma is a little different, especially Northeastern Oklahoma. But it's a little different. But in Western Oklahoma, there's hills, but they go into the ground. 
They don't go up. They go they go down. There's canes everywhere. <laughs> they go down. Uh, <laughs> That's not a hill. Yeah, it is. It's just one of the guys. That's right. It's just, 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 it's just uh, one on the ground. It, it, it makes, and that made perfect sense to him, actually. Yeah. He, yeah. I, one time he told my mom, my wife that. He, he was like, you know, Mom, uh, in in Oklahoma, the hills just go down. <laughs> my, hills just just go down. my son. Uh, but, but you know, I, I thought that's how it would start. It's like, you know, like, all right. Uh, all, all you who have been listening to this podcast for years and years and years and think, man, people from Oklahoma must be very funny and all that sort of stuff. Like, well, <laughs> we have a treat for you tonight. <laughs> Mike usually just goes, I think this is a good point to record. And then he usually, I think the last two, you didn't even like tell me when you were starting yeah, and, so, and then i'm like oh the, the red light's on on catching foxes.fm where you find our show right you go and you click blog and we have a handful of literally i think it's four things and it's this is the equipment we use because that was the conversation we got asked the most and then it was what do you do if you're being interviewed on our show and it says the first i have it's been years since i've looked at this but i've sent it to everyone the first question you're gonna ask yourself is wait is this the show because we will have been talking for 15 minutes <laughs> with no introductions. Yeah, I do the yep. introduction. If I do an introduction, I do it later. Yeah, that's, my fun. that's my no, fun. That's my fun. That's fun. Well, I hope, though, by the end of that, that everyone's like, all right, well, there is a different way to be Oklahoman. Yeah, not as smart, not as funny. Uh, but, but I, well, I, I think it's true. I, I don't know, actually. I, I think, um, I mean, of course, you, you know, you, I mean, you're from Oklahoma, but only kind of, sort of. Uh, and, uh, okay, because you, 16 years is kind of sort of? Yeah, well, my family's been for 130 years. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, kind of sort of. <laughs> if you're going to go there, yes. They named the state. His family named the I mean, state. And you're a lifelong Catholic. I mean, you know, there, there's only about like 50 Catholics in Oklahoma. So, yeah. I mean, as you know, it's, it's not a very Catholic place. Uh, so, you know, and that's, uh, I, I'll be honest with you, a lot of my thinking on this, of course, I, I've tried to read the mind of the church on this, but it's also, I would love to convert my family. I would. I have a very small chance of that, but I would love to. And then, so then I have to think. Well, well, how, what would be effective in converting my family? Uh, somebody just the other day. Oh my gosh, that was that was talk about a funny story. The somebody the other day said they were watching the Grapes of Wrath. Well, no, they didn't start with that. They started with <laughs> I was watching a movie about your people. Your uh, people. And I, and I said, <laughs> "This is a prisoner." And I said, uh, "All right." What does that mean? And and he said, uh, "Oh, it's called you know you know you know it's grapes for wrath." Like, whoa, 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 that is not my people. <laughs> your people. And he said, "Well, yeah, they're all from Oklahoma." I said, "Yeah, they're from Oklahoma. My people are in Oklahoma. <laughs> they they're didn't still leave. there. They didn't leave. There. They didn't go east they, they didn't. That's exactly. <laughs> they didn't leave. Uh, and, and that actually blew his mind. He's like, "It's not the same." I said, no, no, it's not the same. I said, "My family looks down on people." Who went to Bakersfield, California. California? Exactly right. It's the boomers and the stickers. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, and and so my uh, you know my, my family is is very much. I, I say this all the time. Actually, my mom's family. My mom grew up in California, and uh, and she grew up in between the the mountains and uh, the redwood forest there up in Northern California. And she just has this sort of her mind is like it's it's like a a, a wilderness. I mean, she has big ideas and a dreamer and all that stuff. And my dad's from Western Oklahoma, and you know he's he's just so practical and his face is to the dirt and yeah. and, uh, and and so so I say all that only because I think about what would what would appeal to my dad or to my grandfather. And so you know we've got six generations. So my son, when he was born, we have five generations alive all at once, and he was wow. he, he was the first one not born in Oklahoma. 
And my great great grandfather was born in Oklahoma, and all, and I was the only one. So it's uh, my 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 dad. God bless him. You know, he's my son's born in North Carolina, but we were moving back to Oklahoma. I was a Duke, and you know, he's like, "You don't think you can get back in time?" <laughs> <laughs> you are betraying your entire kith and kin. But before that, I, I was the only one even born on on the east side of I thirty five. Wow. Uh, I mean, they're all born in western Oklahoma on on the west side, uh, and um, and Do you so know what you did in western Oklahoma if you were from Tulsa. Mm-mm. Nothing. No one ever went. Yeah, no. Mm. no way. You never went west no. in West Oklahoma unless you were driving through it. I, I, there, I don't know. There's no purpose s- even driving driving through driving it. Driving through it, no. no. You just, you well, if, we could, if we can tie liturgy into rootedness, I think that might well, be the answer. Well, okay, we've gone full Wendell I think we've got well, the right. <laughs> well, Well, and of course, I'm very formed by, you know, I, I've, I've read pretty well everything Wendell Berry's ever written. Um, but, you know, I, I think about my family, my, my dad's family. I mean, there are people who really put their face in the dirt. And, yep. and kept it, and so the the appeals to their emotions are not very strong. No, no, <laughs> that, no. That's not. In that's, fact, it's vapid. And that's just that's just not that that's just yeah. not a thing to them that they that you would you would actually try to to do that. Um, these these are people who who are of a different kind of breed in a way, and so and so then you you have to actually come up with a you have to actually come up against a, a certain kind of question is. Well, then are they, it's like I was saying about the guy who said, well, if you can't read, you can't be a Christian. If you, if you don't invest lots of emotional content in your, in your worshiping life, then can you not be a Christian? The whole point of me becoming a Catholic is that it's for everybody, for all, for every, for, for every kind of person. And so I, I keep that in mind very, you know, very regularly is that although my, my family, of course, is not at all proud of me that I'm a Catholic priest, uh, and with good reason, because they think I'm wrong and that's the way they should think. Uh, until I can convince them otherwise, you know, it's going to be a thing. Like if they ever get proud of me, then they'll convert. Uh, but until then, they're not proud of me, which is good. I actually think it's better. It's better that way. But they need. But when they come into the church, they're going. They're going to need for their for the kind of people they are, a kind of liturgy that that actually is suitable to the people that they are. And I can I can guarantee you, I can get I I can just guarantee you. And I don't mean to be mean to anybody about this, but if you tell my grandfather. To turn around and shake somebody's hand, tell them how bad they are to be there. Yeah, no, this is even before that. Like, oh, the the opening. Yeah, no, it's not in the beginning. Right? This is the pre-match, the warm-up, yeah, right? Yeah, it's the, the calisthenics, the mass calisthenics. <laughs> uh, my grandfather would never do that, ever. He would never be a part of people that did that. You're saying, uh, please turn around and greet your neighbor. He would never do that under any condition. It's just beyond his. He's a very friendly. If he was here, he would be holding court the whole and the whole thing. But the idea that he would turn around and shake somebody's hand as a stranger to him mm-hmm. because somebody from a microphone told him to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's like not in a million years. Right. Yeah, what yeah, a S show. I hate the experience of non-denominationalism in America through the lens of um, seeker-sensitive movement. To me, it always felt like you got a fake smile on your face. You're doing this routine because I, as an unbeliever who hates Christians, is who you think I am, or a skeptic or a seeker, whatever – uh, I'm suspicious of Christians, but your disarming charm has worn me down and, okay, I'm open to the saving message. It's hard to sell that in rural communities compared to big city communities where the hardship is, I'm not saying like life isn't hard in a city, but it's different when you're dealing with red Oklahoma clay and you're a farmer and nothing comes out of it, right? Or, or things like that. Or, you know, like you're I grew just, up. You're just settled. You're just so, that's a different thing. The other thing is that you're just a settled person. I actually that that's more normative than than, than the hardship part. Um, what, what appeals to so much of that that what you're talking about? I mean, there's a there's several p- churches in Oklahoma that are like this too. You know, the non uh, the life church thing started in Oklahoma, yeah. right? 
Um, and they do that. Yeah, life.church. Yeah, it used to be oh, lifechurch.tv, life but then now it's yeah. just life.church. Yeah, uh, side note, the guy who is Craig the Rochelle. Web, yeah, well, his web programmer okay. is like legends called Gritting the 960. Everyone does it, and it was what he invented in order oh, to they make were, it. They're, they're on the cut. I mean, they, they're beyond the cutting edge. They, yeah, they yeah. are the edge. They are the edge. Wood's edge. No, that's a head shop. <laughs> <laughs> that's, another, that's another one of those. But you have to think about – so I think I thought about this. I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a part of this too, is that I, um, you know, I grew up in a town where not only my, 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 my parents were together – you know, my, my, they have a very stable marriage, but my my dad's parents lived in the same town. I had I had, my 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 dad has four brothers. At least two of them, uh, were actually three of them, always lived in the same town. I saw people from my family every single day for the first sixteen years of my life. I mean, it was it was to the extent that um, when I was in third grade, I could ride my bike to school, but I had to cross over Main Street. And I could beat the bus. I lived a block from the kindergarten, first grade school. I could beat the bus, but the only way I could beat the bus back home on my bike was if I if I ran the red light across Main Street. And so, of course, I had no problem with that. Uh, so I come home one day, and my my mom says, uh, "Hey, if you run that light one more time, I'm going to beat you. You know what?" And uh, I said, what are, "What are you talking about?" She said, "Well, you know, so and so called me and said you keep running that light, you're going to get hit by a car. If you do that again, you're going to be back on the bus." Uh, and so that that's a settled environment. That's a settled that's a settled yep. environment. And it's not a perfect environment. There, there's all kinds, of, you know, had I stayed there forever, I would not have become a Catholic, right? Because it's not possible. In that little town, there's probably 200 Catholics in the whole town. We didn't even think they were Christian people. No, no one in Broken Arrow thought I was. Yeah, I mean, and Broken Arrow is relatively posh compared to where I grew up. Well, it wasn't when I was there. It was becoming that. Like today, it's a different town. Yeah, yeah, sure. Like back when I was there, it, you know. We had oil oil there all around my neighborhood. Like, But now that doesn't exist. I mean, but, you know, it's it, it, so... So, but then what's happened is, is that people like me have all moved, moved out of those communities and we've moved to the suburbs of places, right? And so that, that's created a whole, a whole sense of dislocation. Mm-hmm. And so then people being friendly, people going out of their way to help you, in many ways replaces the family structure. Yeah. Yep. Um, and in many ways it, it reaches out, but, but it doesn't, but it can't replace your family structure. Like somebody being nice to you. So that church in Oklahoma City, that's a very famous life church. They got somebody on a golf cart to come pick you up in their gigantic parking lot. That seems pretty nice. But, you know, that, that can't replace me seeing my grandmother three times a week. That, that can't replace that. And so at a certain point, you have to be willing to say, no, this doesn't replace this. And we just got to own it. We, we, we just have to own that, that that's the way it is, that suburban culture, which is the dominant thing in the kind of the growing American culture at the moment, because uh, the urban thing is, is, is not. And the, and the rural thing is dying. Yeah. Uh, we, we've got to actually come to a, a more a more sort of um, mature grip of what we're doing there. And, and so, like what you're talking about, I think it actually it's actually very important and, and it's worth thinking about. Right? It's like those guys are in some ways noticing this. Right? These are all people who are moving from yeah. from settled locations to un, into an unsettled environment. We're going to be really nice to them. That's going to fix it. But that doesn't fix. That doesn't fix that. All it does is just sort of mask the fact that you're Paper. yeah it just it just masks it it has an allure to a certain kind of person who likes to be pampered or whatever else uh well maybe so right i don't know i don't think anybody from ohio likes to be pampered is that true anybody from ohio likes to be pampered not not those that grew up by lake erie <laughs> lake erie it caught on fire in the 80s so i have, we, never, we're not, I have we, never been i have never been to ohio i've never been to ohio i've never any reason to go to ohio but i don't Ohio does not strike me as a pampered place because no. they, they set their own lakes on fire. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but but I think that that's 
when you when you think about what what Christian communities are trying to accomplish, they in some they they're they're notionally grabbing at that dislocation, yeah. but they're not actually fundamentally addressing it. They're not resolving it. They're not resolving it. And so, you know, the way we we talked about it when I was in seminary was that those 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 no, those big non-denominational churches, uh, they have eight lanes. Of, they have two lanes of traffic going in, and they have eight lanes of traffic going out. Is that there's there's a lot of people driving in. There's way more people in this, so mm-hmm. there's a there's a there's a just kind of a carousel that they're on, and and the end of it is, from what I can tell, largely is unbelief. It's a unfortunate combination of of trying to say this is what faith is. It's someone being friendly to you, somebody somebody catering to you, somebody doing this, somebody giving you this experiential data, the preacher being really good or whatever. Whereas the Catholic thing, I mean, this is the beauty of the Catholic faith, in my opinion, is like you may hate this. But you better have your somewhere butt on somewhere on a Catholic campus <laughs> uh, at some time on Sunday morning when, when the angels mm-hmm. are present and the sacrifice is happening. You know, it's interesting because uh, two things in light of the conversation happened where when Bishop Lopes gave his All Souls Day talk on oh, yeah. uh, building the, uh, uh, the cemetery. Uh, Jesus Christ. Was an, an amazing the, talk. <laughs> Bishop Lopes <laughs> is the head of the ordinary. At, the yeah. uh, the bishop, but of, the of course, as we always you. talk about, certainly first level, most impressive thing. He didn't look at anything. He just spoke. Get all memorized. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. He's, yeah, I'm sure he's given the talk, but still, he didn't use anything. He didn't speak from anything except his own head and heart. Which, which immediately, you know, we talk about what draws us liturgically. Uh, a lecture is soon as somebody's not looking at something, I'm immediately taken by that. About uh, he, it was interesting. I want to stop, no, no, stop you real, uh, real quick on that. That's one of the things about Bishop Lewis is actually amazing. Uh, so that on that thing, the no, no using anything. Yeah, I can't remember how that whole deal came about to get him up there for that. We had something happening, and I just said, anyway. And he's like, "Well, just tell me what you want to talk about." We came from Luis Esparza's. Yeah, but that wasn't it though. That was, no, that, no, that no, was. Just, yeah, that is where we all came yeah, from. We had, a, we had a gigantic funeral that day. Yeah. Uh, but but it was just a, like for some reason he was going to come, and I, I right. can't even remember the context. Like, all right, yeah, he, yeah. he's 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 on the schedule to come, mm-hmm. and so you know we're going back and forth. He's like, well, just tell him to talk about. And I'm like, all right, so it's you know it was October 28th. That was, it was right, St. Simon right. and Jude, right? right. And uh, so I was like, well, we're getting ready for All Souls Day. You know, we're getting ready for November. It was the month of the Holy Souls, and we're trying to build this this uh, cemetery. And so talk about that. Yeah, and he's just <clears> like, yeah, got it done. Yeah, he just. I mean, so not only is it yeah. like no notes, but it's like. You know, I give him like a little advance warning. He's ready to pop off. On, yeah, I mean, anyway, absolutely. So, all right, so back, no, no, no. Yeah, that's no, just it's a, a, good insight. a Bishop Lotz plug on like, oh, yeah, right. he's like, he just had like, he hit the track and off he goes. So I don't have an experience with him other than that amazing, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the amazing confirmation mass where I, I loved his homily, right? So I, I was one of the 15 parishioners outside enjoying the warm uh, Texas sun underneath the... Uh, it wasn't 15, it was... More than that. Yeah, it was about, actually, yeah, you're right. It was about 30. But enough people found that, like, throughout the mass, like, people, like, wedged in. And so, but me and Noah, we were like, oh, we're going to sit in the front row. And that's the dumbest thing because that's the only part not covered in shade in the little pop-up tents. <laughs> it's the only part not covered in shade. Our church is something else, by the way. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but listen, it's barn living. It's how I was yeah. brought up. It's 4-H. But the uh, <laughs> hearing him give his homily, which was awesome, because I'd never heard him. And I was like, oh, is he going to speak with a British accent? Like, I didn't know. Kiwi, maybe, and uh, <laughs> not the Southern Cross. It's, it's, I, hadn't, so, I hadn't prepared you for that. No. 
uh, another amazing thing to see in Life of the Ordinary is, is you, I think you can still get this on the internet, is uh, his consecration as the bishop, February, February 2nd, 2016, piece of, piece mm. of presentation. So we're, we're the first mission from the cathedral. That's how we got our, our, our oh, illustrious. Oh. That's how that all came to pass. So, uh, and, uh, and, you know, no one really knew. And, and I mean, I imagine most people who listen to this thing and most people in Houston. I, mean, I had a conversation today with somebody. He's like, you know, Father, most people don't know that there's a Catholic church here. I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> yep. That's right. Uh, and, and so, so. I don't know why. There's a little sign that says enter. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I we think should, you made it yourself or maybe should, one of your children say, did. Be careful. <laughs> yeah. Be careful. Uh, I mean, do we want anyone else to come? I, I said that to that person. Like, I mean, our masses are full. <laughs> like, yeah. We're we can't put hold anyone else. But, but uh, actually, so, you know, I mean, everyone, like, you're joking about the, is he going to speak with the British accent thing? But that was a, a real thing. It's like, are these all those old, weird, pretentious people who speak with English accents? Are they all, are they all, in my head, it's like they're all going to sound like William Buckley. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Yeah, so exactly, exactly. Buckley is that's a perfect example. It's like, like Buckley's like from Savannah. Right? Yeah, he's from Savannah. Talks like he went. To, he was like gestated in Harvard, but a little bit on the south end of London. Yeah, like it's like a mixture of. A bunch and of you're stuff. like. But you're from Savannah, right? Or he's from Savannah, Charles yeah. one of the two, right? I, I, and they're all the same to me. Uh, and so, like, that, that was a thing. It's like, I think a lot of people thought, okay, you know, the ordinary thing is, like, for people with, this, like, this English pretension. Well, so then we get, we get a bishop. The consecration was at the Coke Cathedral downtown, and it was live stream. It was not just live stream, but it was on. It was live TV on, on EWTN. Oh, cool. Mm. And, so, um, and so it starts... And Cardinal Mueller, the prefect for the CDF at that time, uh, who had been, of course, Bishop Lowe's boss up to that point, is a celebrant of the Mass and the primary uh, consecrator. And so, you know, the, the intro begins, and they, you know, it's beautiful and all this stuff. And then, uh, and then there he is, you know, celebrating an ordinary form of the Mass. It's the name of the Father, and then of the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Amen. And then, and then, the, then the deacon of the Mass is Deacon Stocksdale, who's the uh, deacon down at Our Lady of Walsingham, who's from West Texas. He's from Weatherford, Texas. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ say. Thou shalt love thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, the second like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbors, thyself. On these two commandments, hang all the law, the prophets. And like, and like, in, those two, in those two things, like, like all the idea of pretension were like just gone. It's like, what the heck is this? Like, you have this gigantic German and this little yeah. short West Texas guy. Like, this is the ordinary. This is what's Welcome. happening. Uh, and so, so I think a lot of people, you know, that was actually in some ways a really eye-opening thing. It's like, this is not what we thought it was. This is mm-hmm. not like, oh, to join the ordinary, you must read Evelyn Wall and you must, uh, you know, sort of see. I thought it was Jane Austen. You, t- I've been reading so much Jane Austen. They're all right there. They're all right there. In some ways, Jane Austen is better. Uh, a good Aristotelian. Yes, J- Jane Austen is a good Aristotelian. Yeah. So, so, so anyway, I didn't mean to derail on that, but but it's actually, but it's actually an interesting thing. Is like him being becoming the bishop was like, uh, and some it was very significant in a lot of ways. But in one of those ways was, no, this is not just sort of the, the, the Catholic Church getting into weird sort of like Anglophile stuff. Because right? that's that was the perception, mm-hmm. I think, at the beginning was, huh, the Catholic Church doing weird Anglophile things. Yeah. The first reading from the book of the Everlasting Man of Chesterton. <laughs> yeah. so, well, four. it was like a reading from the, you know, that, that, that'd be like Buckley, right? A yeah. reading yeah. from <laughs> the, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. That's what they Isaiah. said. They said that in England, by the way. They say Isaiah. Yeah, it is stupid. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. So here, here's my problem with the ordinary. Can I tell you how hard it is to go to mass at your church for me personally? Well, if you're outside, it's tough. It's, it's, it's no, but me and my wife know the difference between nine ten and nine twelve. 
<laughs> nine ten. You can pick eighty percent of the seats in the place that you want. Nine twelve. Unless you have to go to confession. Good luck. Nine fifteen. Okay, so here's the problem. My kids love going to confession to you, which is very annoying for me because I'm the guy sitting in the pew going, "Oh no, these seats are taken. No, they're taken. They're t- they'll be taken for the next forty five minutes, but no one will sit here. Right, right. So I feel like I should rent it to you until <laughs> they sit here for the next forty five. Literally in my head, I'm watching Mallory Spears that. with all of her boys, and I'm yeah, like. Yeah. I have two empty seats. Kateri and my wife are at confession. I don't know what to do. That's funny. I feel so guilty. That's actually really funny. But the hardest part for me, the hardest part for me, and this is not me joking at all, is reconciliation between that you guys were an Anglican thing and I am very Irish. Right? And in my heart of hearts. Is Gormley an Irish name? Gormley is an Irish name. Absolutely. And in my heart of hearts. When I go through my family history, my family history was strung up by the British. And, like, I remember one time I went into North Tulsa, or I was in uh, Tulsa, and my fam, my um, family friends. The, you ever go to the... Kilkenny's, by the way? Huh? You ever go to Kilkenny's on Cherry Street? Sure did. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great place. That's a great place. I love that that's place. That's a great place. Yeah, me and Chris Miller, we had him on the show not too long ago. He, me and him went uh, when I turned, because I never drank until I turned 21. And uh, me and him went, I think on my 21st birthday, straight to Kilkenny's. And then one prayed to Christ the King? Uh, no. no. <laughs> That's no. right there, though, right? Christ, it's Christ the King, yes. right? Yes. I think we parked there, but we didn't, because he, he was a seminarian for a bit, and I think, yeah, we parked there, but we didn't go there. But uh, the, the thing that is crazy is, like, reconciling the Irish dealing with the English. Yeah. And then realizing, so Brian, in his endless propagandizing of the ordinariate to me and my family would send everything <laughs> that the organist from Walsingham Cathedral would oh, write. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that, I, I mean, my jaw drops every time I read their stuff because I'm like, this makes so much sense. And one of the things was, you know, in because the Latin was always celebrated in the Catholic Church, there never developed sacred music based on whatever, all the fancy language. Uh, but there, there was in the Anglican Church that is still doctrinally orthodox and in line with the Catholic Church. However, we have this beautiful patrimony mm. of English language hymns. And I'm like, this stuff is like amazing and also i feel like i'm betraying my great-grandfather and even and even going to mass like that's like a visceral like i want to become a member of the ordinary like i agree when i watch bishop lopes do his eucharistic uh um revival talk oh yeah there was something about it that i was just so i went to mass with my kids my wife we couldn't even sit together and i have two kids racked with adhd they get it from their father they were peaceful quiet Half of my family was sitting with the Jones kids, the other half with the Lamberts, and then I'm by myself. One of my sons comes up and sits next to me just to keep me – felt bad for me. Celine was chanting the Gloria. <laughs> she, she has it memorized. And these are similar words. Uh, but there was this thing that came over my kids where they just – they're peaceful. They're calm. Like, these are not my kids. My daughter said to me the other day, I love the music. I pre-, she pulled, like, pulled my shirt, my Cecilia. I love the music of presentation. By the music, you mean the organ and the people singing, right? And I said, why is that? And she said, well, because it's like angels. It's like angels. It's not like what I listen to on my, you know, our iPads, you know. And, like, that's from a 10-year-old. And I just think of all this stuff, and, it like, there's this element where it's like, this is awesome. I, I don't, I can put down my liturgy war stuff. Because that's why I think people go to, like, the traditional church. Because they're done with, like, fighting yeah. with Father over whether or not we're going to put raisins in the Eucharist again. 
you know, and it's just like this peace, a, 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 a detente settles over the, over the thing, and you can worry about other things, like, am I forming my kids? Not, well, father spoke heresy again. Yeah, and people go back to gossiping about each other. That's what I say. It's like, yeah, we go back to, you know, the, way, the way things are at our parish is that people just go back to normal <clears throat> sinning. You know, gossiping about each other, <laughs> being being greedy. You know, it's like uh, they don't they, we don't we don't fight about the liturgy at our parish, so we just go back to being regular sinners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. We got the regular. Sin. But you're you know, the, I, I wish I had a, a really. Um, I think about that too, actually. Especially when I found out the prayer for humble access. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. So the the the, know, the, like, the the three truly distinctive things in our form of the mass are the at the beginning of the mass. The what's we call the call for purity and the summary of the law, which I love. Mm-hmm. Those are the call for purity was prayed before the Reformation. That was prayed in the sacristy, and then but then the summary of the law, uh, which was actually in the older form of the Anglican uh, versions, was actually the whole Decalogue every Sunday, every every week. Which Decalogue, the Protestant one or the Catholic one? Well, that's actually an interesting question. I, I don't. It would probably be the Catholic one. Pro- actually, probably the Catholic one. There is not a Catholic and a Protestant one. The yeah. Catholic one derives from Deuteronomy. The Protestant from Exodus. I have to I have to go back and look at this. Actually, that's a good question. Uh, the sec the second distinctive element, you know, truly truly distinctive element. Uh, well, I guess there's four. The third is the is the penitential right. The third is the prayer of humble access right before right, right before receiving Holy Communion, and the fourth is the is the common prayer of Thanksgiving. Yeah. So those mm-hmm. four things, and they're beautiful, and they are beautiful, yep. and they're all true. They're all true. Uh, that's what makes them beautiful is that they're actually all true. And they're all from Thomas Cranmer, who's a heretic. Um, and there's no other way to say that, but that's the way. They come from Cranmer. Yeah, but they aren't his now because they belong to the Catholic Church. This is the mystery of the ordinary is that those aren't his. Um, that They are true things that a person who's a heretic said, which the church says these are true and they belong to us. There is. So I want to get back to Sarah, but there, there's actually a very important thing. There, there's no more imperialistic group in the history of the world than the Catholic Church. What, what does an imperialist do? An imperialist doesn't destroy. That's what Genghis Khan does, right? Genghis Khan goes in. He's like, all right, kill everyone. You watch that horrible Northman movie. That's what the, that's what the berserkers did and everyone else, right? They just kill everyone. But an imperialist goes in and says, huh, these things are good for my empire. These aren't mine necessarily, but I'm the empire, so I will make them mine. Mm-hmm. And he just assimilates. He assimilates the good uh, of the of the underlings and brings them in. No one has done that with greater in, uh, skill than the Catholic faith, because we say everything that's true, every every single thing that's true of any variety belongs to us. That's ours. In a quote from someone attributed to JP two, all that which is authentically human can find its place in the church. That's right. Yeah, that's that's a kind of another another way to say the same thing, right? I mean, it's not. It's a, a different you know turning of the of the, the prism in a way, and so that's actually one of the mysteries of the ordinary is that. I mean, no one thinks, in my opinion, nobody thinks that from 1970 to 2020 that that, that this will be looked on as the best 50 years of the Catholic Church. <laughs> I don't, Second best. I don't, maybe so. <laughs> there's Pentecost and then I, there's, and this, I, I and there's the new Pentecost. I just don't think that's going to be like the, like, hey, you know, you know, in, in, in 2,500, know, people are looking back, like, you know, this era was really pretty much the best. I don't know, man. I don't know. Scott Hahn. Mate, well, right, right, that's right. And so in some ways it's sort of surprising that the church actually had the, the moral and the spiritual stamina to discern something new, something that was outside of itself to say, well, what's true here? What's actually true? What actually nourishes the faith in the true God and, and the life which will, will bring about union with the true God? 
And they were able to say, well, this group of people keeps saying they want to join us. And they have these things that they say, by praying these things, we want to join you. And like, all right, well, let's look at them. Okay, this, this, and this, yes, that makes you Catholic. These prayers actually help you to become a Catholic, and by helping you become a Catholic, that means that they are good, and they have nothing that's objectionable in the prayers themselves. And because of that, we actually believe that they may actually nourish the faith of people who are already Catholics. And that's like, you know, if you want like the ordinary kind of like elevator speech, that's it. And then they're like, yeah, but like the guy who wrote it is a heretic. (laughs) Well, yeah, (laughs) that's true. It is. I mean, you have to like you sort of have to own that that's true, but you have to say, but is truth actually degraded by the person who utters it, or or is actually does that enhance the mystery? Uh, and and I have to. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of responsible for this, so I say, well, in the mystery of God, it took 500 years for a heretic for a heretic to speak the truth and it actually be integrated into the life of the church, and that uh, and that that uh, almost certainly as he is is being ground up uh, in the pains of hell. Uh, <laughs> with absolute knowledge, there we go. Almost, there there almost, we almost certainly uh, that, like that, that's what's happening, right? It's like, hey, by the way, your prayers are being said by the people that you disowned, that you that you swore fidelity to, because Thomas Cranmer is a Catholic priest. He's a Catholic priest who, who, for the sake of his own well-being, was willing to to disown that, and so it's made good. Now, back to the the whole Irish and English thing. Well, that's a sticky, that's a sticky, sticky, sticky thing. The, yeah. the British would say, that's a sticky wicket. Yeah, that's right. That's a sticky, that's a sticky yeah, wicket. Yeah, I, I know. It's about, what's that, what's that, uh, what's that dumb sport called? Cricket. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I don't care about that. But We're going to get a presentation team. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, you might not be. You're probably not as competitive. Michelle as me and Brian gonna, are at bowling cricket. We're, <laughs> Michelle, we're, yeah. Michelle was going to reach not out. Yet. To not yet. <laughs> we already got a team. But, it's the sticky wickets. I suspect, I don't, I don't know personally uh, anyone in the English ordinary. But I have to, th- I have to imagine that that is a real issue in England. That that's not because most English Catholics, most Catholics who are in England, as I say, are not English. They're Irish. One of my coworkers, who uh, Jane, who we had, you know, she's born and raised in London, but she's Irish. Holy identifies as Irish. Holy yeah. identifies as devout Roman Catholic. And for her being a Londoner, it is very difficult. Like. It is very interesting to see how she she's a woman of two worlds. Like she is, uh, loves being oh very British and posh, and you know she does that whole thing. And she's deeply London. Simultaneously, she's one hundred percent Irish, and it's fascinating to see that. Like for me, as an American, we are Irish. You know, there are more Irish living in America than there are yeah, in Ireland, right? right? right. I, I remember one day reading a stat when I was in Broken Arrow that Ireland has a population of 3 million and so did Oklahoma. Yeah, that's right. And I was like, oh. I was like oh, my goodness, our state, that country? And I realized, oh, the majority are here. For us, uh, being Irish is a thing you dream about, right? Um, uh, who was, Joe Pesci had the most incredible line, and in, I think it was it wasn't it was the movie with Matt Damon starting the Skull and Bones. Right, wasn't that where he's a CIA agent? They start in the CIA. Oh, no. And, uh, what was that um, called? Uh, it'll come to me. Yeah. So he's talking to any Joe Pesci's character is a mafia guy, and he's doing the deal with Matt Damon, who's a CIA guy. And he's like, I, I don't get you people. And he's talking to him as a wasp. And he goes, I don't get you people. You know, he goes, the Irish, they got the, they got the motherland. The Italians, we got the church. What do you people have? And Matt Damon's character just kind of stands up and he goes, we have America. And he like walks away and is like, that's a wasp right there. That is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. But for when he said the Irish have the motherland, I was like, literally, 
dreams of, I, I'm an unsettled Irishman. Like, there's nothing about that. My, my family didn't, we weren't particularly Irish, but the ideal, the idea of Ireland, uh, like, to the point where the IRA was, in a, like, the bombings, the shootings, was an appealing, like, the, like a, a weird, like, when I would just read history about yeah, trouble. the trouble, like, that, like, was, that appealing. was appealing those, those to right me. guys. Yeah, right, that's, right, that's, right, that's exactly. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. But, that's how, but that's how irrational it is. It's a desire that's not rational, you know. But to the point where uh, my buddy, I started to say, my buddy Brendan Smith, his family, his parents are from Ireland. They have like eight kids. He was like the whoopsie baby. So all of his brothers are 10 years older and plus than him. Brendan, yeah. And they all go to Ireland. His parents would go to Ireland for like weeks when he was in high school and just leave him at home with, with an older sibling. And we would have all sorts of fun at his house. But um, the uh, with a party, that sounded weird. Uh, but... <laughs> For him, I remember he took me to my first Irish bar, and he goes, this is a real Irish bar, so what's the difference in Tulsa? And I said, what's the difference? And he, I, I have no idea. I, bar? You know, like, he goes, this is the difference between an Irish bar and a fake Irish bar. A fake Irish bar calls itself an Irish pub, and has shamrocks everywhere. He goes, a real Irish bar has a, neon, has a sign that just says bar or beer, and has, maybe has, it will have an Irish flag hanging on the window, but it doesn't do any of the gimmicky crap. Yeah, like Kilkenny's does. And I oh, imported every, every piece of lumber from the motherland. Uh, but in there, he said that he took a buddy and goes, I'm going to tell you how to order a beer. You walk up and say, I want a beer. What you don't do is you walk up and you go, oh, can I have a black and tan? Because a black and tan were mercenary troops who would shoot up Irish neighborhoods and all this stuff. And the guy, I mean, he told these stories, like guys getting like beat the hell up for ordering the wrong drink because it invoked Britishness. And I literally, like literally, the first probably five times I went to presentation, I was like, oh, I wonder what my dear, sweet, great-grandmother was thinking of me now. <laughs> oh, my son, he's well, fucking with the British over there. Well, you know, I mean, the the guy that we've, uh, I don't know, Father Fletcher's, wrote, you know, Paul Kingsnorth. Oh, yeah. You know, wrote Who's the cross. Orthodox. Wrote the, wrote the, wrote the, wrote the he's, what? he's Yeah. Lives in Ireland. Yeah. Well, it's like T.S. Eliot. He's smart. He, yeah. yeah, he's smart. He's smart. Guy. He's a Romanian Orthodox in Ireland. He's a British guy. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm, no I'm, I'm like, I'm looking at these things like, what? You know what that is? It's the it's the hipster irony. That's a long winded way of saying. How do I reconcile this? Yeah, well, so I think a lot about that actually. Maybe more than I should. I mean, I should be trying to become a holy person. But uh, I'll tell you a funny a funny thing. I uh, I was making grades in school. And it, it, it wasn't it wasn't hard for me to do to make good grades. I never studied. I never studied very hard. Yeah, I ended up at Duke, and uh, you know Duke is a you know it's it's a I mean it just is, it's a, it's an elite academic institution. It really is. And for a while, I of course tried to unlearn my accent, not 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 realizing I did, but but I did. And then I realized I was fairly smart. I'm not I'm not a genius, but I'm a fairly intelligent person. But I realized that my 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 accent didn't have anything to do with my intelligence. These people uh, in the academic world clearly thought that that the way you talked had something to do with your intelligence, oh, yeah. and I mm-hmm. just I just rebelled against that, and so I, I relearned my accent almost while I was at Duke almost entirely, and uh, I really did. It was thicker. Well, maybe maybe so. I mean, you know, I, listen, I, I, I sometimes learn that, and I go home and talk to my dad. And I'm like, well, no, not so. Yeah, not even close. <laughs> not even. It's like when my dad sees his brothers from Philly. Yeah. All of a sudden, I was like, oh, my dad is from Philly. Yeah, Holy right. Crap. That's He's right. Like, yeah. Sweet, 25 years in Oklahoma. Took one visit with my uncle. I, I keep trying to tell him. I was just telling one of my sons the other day. I said, when when you want something to drink, you say you're thirsty. He said what? <laughs> he said what? I, you say you're thirsty. <laughs> He's like. That I can't say that. I said, no, you can. You're, 
You're from Oklahoma, really. You're thirsty. You can do you're born in North Carolina, but you're that's from right. Oklahoma. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, the, the other thing that happened was so I was in seminary, and I was, I was around all these elite academic kind of people. Seminary, or this is Episcopal seminary? Yeah, well, so at Duke, at Duke, Duke is a nominally, yeah, Duke is a nominally Methodist seminary. It's a divinity school, but there's an Anglican house of studies there, and so you can get a degree at, at Duke and then do some Anglican studies. Is that an MDiv? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, is Stanley Howard was? He, he, he's retired there now. He's but retired. He was, was yeah, he, there he was you? there when I was there. Yeah, Black, did you ever have a class? Uh, yes, uh, Stanley and I know each other a little bit, uh, and uh, uh, you know I love I, I love Stanley to death actually. Um, yeah, so we we definitely know each other. So I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen him in a few years. We haven't talked, but but uh, there was a time we, I mean, we we knew who each other were, and um, yeah, we we could do a whole thing on Stanley uh, on, on another day and why he needs to become a Catholic. But uh, we don't have we don't have time for that. But then the other thing was so so I I realized that what I thought was true was sort of the unfashionable thing. What was happening was I could see it happening was that it was sort of tied to you know you thinking you're like a a, per, a, a particular class. Um, you know, so it's like, well, if you like liturgy, if you, if you like, well, so if, as I say, if you like fine things in the worship of God, you must be of a particular class. That, 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 that's in the Catholic Church, that's in the Episcopal Church, that's, that's in Christianity in America, basically everywhere. So if you think you should have... If you're very, a high church, you're a... a high church, I mean, yeah. that's, you know, that, that didn't used to be a Catholic word, that used to always be an Anglican word, but that's, yeah. that's filtered into to Catholicism. If you're high church, you must be a, yeah. a certain I feel class. like that's a C.S. Lewisism, that... Spread throughout Catholicism, that, right? You like, must, you must be a. That's a, a, a class term, yeah. uh, and, and of course, what what a lot of those people try to do is like, no, there's these slum priests in England and whatever else, and I mean, it's all a shadow game. <laughs> and, and so, what I realized is like, well, if I talk like I'm from Oklahoma, that, that actually like bottoms out a lot of that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't yeah. be, I shouldn't be saying this out loud to everyone, but but it, what it does is it's like, so you come to mass presentation, I would say that. You know, someone could say we're—I don't know—we're wrong, but but in terms of the formality of the liturgy, it, it's us and the Latin Mass and, and Regina Chaley, right? Uh, the Latin yeah. Mass and, and Our Lady of Walsingham. So there, there's three places in in the Houston area that are known as the most formal places in terms of liturgical practice, and and that we would be one. Our little barn church, you know, we would have Mass still in the warehouse, <laughs> but that we'd be on the list there. But then you talk to me, and. I, I talk like a person who thinks that hills go into the ground. <laughs> hills are canyons. Yeah, watch out now. I'm thirsty. Yeah, I'm thirsty, right? And I say, and I say that I say I'm thirsty, uh, and and it has a disarming effect because what 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 it yeah. actually indicates to people immediately is that this is not a matter of class. No, even dumb people can worship formally. That's what, no, 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 truly, no, that's truly right because that's what people think, right? Yeah. People, people, yeah. people see. The way we worship, and they immediately think that they, they feel uncomfortable because they're not used to it, and they feel like they're mm. being judged. They feel like people are watching them. They don't know how they don't know how to do the thing, and they and that's a, and that's and that's a, a a bad experience actually. But then they talk to the priest there, and the priest can barely speak English, and he, his word he can't speak more than two syllables at a time, and it's like well something's not it it, it, it creates. I mean, it's a fancy word, right? It creates an aporia for them, an opening of unanswerable space. Like, well, maybe it's not like I thought. Because if I walked up to you and spoke with you in a, in a you know, a London accent, yeah. well, of course, right? like, that would just confirm all that, right? Right. Oh, he'll be wearing grandmother's lace at liturgy today. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. This place has way too much. Yeah, that's right. So, so all right. So, so I actually think that's important. So, I hate to admit that, but I sort of recultivated that in a way as like a, as a as a defense of the liturgy. It's a selling point when it's it's disarming 
that you think it's one thing, but the people who are there are totally, you would think yeah. that this Anglican use right is full of a bunch of white people who don't want to be around brown people, but then you find out that half the choir is Spanish speaking. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And the priest, the priest barely speaks English. Uh, I, I think it's a very legitimate thing about like, so for, for Irish people in particular, really for only Irish people, the English are, are the enemy. Let's just be frank about it, and that and that there's no there there is not an ability to distinguish between the English nation and and Protestant faith, and the Irish people and, and the Catholic faith. You, y'all may not even know this. There was a time in which, and it's still called there's called the thing called the Church of Ireland, which is the in, the Anglican Church in Ireland, which was the established church of which nobody went to. Basically, I mean, more or less, I mean, less than 10% of the population in all over Ireland, of which every Irish person paid taxes to support. And they stole all the churches. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, there is. I was, a- I was talking to someone who was an Episcopalian. I was, I was talking about the Anglican Communion. I said, the Anglican Communion is composed of a bunch of different churches the Church of England, the Church of Ireland, the Church of Scotland, the Church of Wales. And they looked at me like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, I, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm talking about. The Church of Ireland, and they're like, no, no, no. The Church of Ireland is the Catholic Church. And I go, no, no, no. The majority of Catholic, mm-hmm. of Irish who it's go Catholic. to church are Catholic, yes. But there's a thing in the Anglican Communion called the Church called of Ireland. Called the Church of Ireland. Ireland. That's correct. Did Which is the, the, the Church of Ireland is the Anglican Church in Ireland. Yeah, but it's, but it's not established, of course. The Episcopal Church is not established in the United States. I mean, the, the, the Church of Ireland is was, it's not anymore, but was established in the Irish government the same way the Church of England was established in the Irish government. So then... So then the people, the people in Ireland paid taxes, and their taxes went to fund the, the Church of Ireland. The majority of people didn't go to. So, um, so that's, like, that's a real wound, right? Like on top of all the other terrible stuff that, that went down for, I don't know, what, it was 300-something years. I think that what we have to say is, and the reason I bring up my accent and all that sort of stuff, is, is that there, there has to be a way to narrate something that is greater than, than personal loyalties, that actually I, I tend to think that there is something sort of extraordinarily beautiful about the people that sought to bring down the faith are actually things that are extending the faith or, or some element of what they're doing, you know, so, some element of their heritage at least, right? But to do that, it actually requires a Catholic voice. So, so having... You know, uh, I mean, we're not hillbillies. You know, someone's saying, well, we, we, you know, the hill, well, no one from Western Oklahoma is a hillbilly. There's no hills. You know, I, I don't know, we're rednecks or whatever. <laughs> uh, inverted hillbillies, inverted hillbillies or whatever. But it actually helps to say, no, the, the, the truth that's being articulated here yeah. is not a political truth, first and foremost, yeah. or a racial truth. I mean, this is the great question. You know, this is the, the I mean, this is the, the question that we're dealing with in our own day is can is there something that can transcend your race or your identity or something like that right uh is is that possible because as crazy as i as i tend to think all all this stuff that we're that's swirling around us actually is i i think it's crazy because i'm a catholic and if i wasn't a catholic i actually think that i would probably be right there with them mm-hmm. um to be honest with you is that because they, they have human programs to deal with the diversity mm-hmm. which i think feel like as a catholic they're doomed to failure because they're only human, right? Yeah, that's and right. That, but the Catholic thing is, here's the divine initiative, and only the divine can truly be the fatherhood of all. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but without that, there's, there remains this desire for both for identity and for universality, right? So that, that those two things are always 
in every human person, in my opinion, there is that desire to be part of a group of people that is that 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 allows you to be who you are, but then also that allows you to have a connection to a universal thing, mm-hmm. and and that, that of course that's what the Catholic faith provides. But without that, you go searching for something else. And so you look at, you know, all the great challenges in the world right now of. Um, the kind of the, the racial segregation in various ways, or the, or the gender things, or the sexual things, whatever they are, are all are all attempts actually to seek that. And so, what I would tell an, an Irish person who finds himself in the ordinary is, yes, this is a bizarre thing, but you also worship a man uh, who's crucified, who's your God, and that this <laughs> this is the surprise. Yeah. This is this is actually a surprise for all of us. Uh, and so, in the same, I mean, by the same token, is a person who who refuses to give up his Western Oklahoma accent, finds himself as a Catholic, as a priest in the Catholic Church, preaching the truth of the Catholic faith and refusing to give up on that uh, and also refusing to give up on his accent. I mean, it's, it's, in some ways it's no different. Is uh, I, I, I refuse now to be somebody different than I am. I mean, there was a time in my life, you know, where, I, like I said, I, I, I was slowly getting rid of my accent. Um, I don't think I was... But that would sound weird. It was, it Working was, on your well, but I, you know, I can do it, right? I can, I can, I can raise the register of my voice a little bit, and I can tell you that I, I've, I've read those books, and I can tell you that those things, are, uh, I, I can, I can bring up objections and things like that, and I, I, I can work on it. I, mean, I haven't done that hardly at all, right? Your non-regional diction is so sing-songy. Yeah, right. right. I, I mean, can do this. Thing. I, can. I, I used to be better at. It. I used okay. to be better at it, but, but I, but I gave it up, right? I, I, in some ways, like becoming Catholic with like, Man, this is just the way I talk. So would it yeah. be fair to say that you were colonized by Catholicism but not by Britishism or Poshism? Or, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know? yeah, I mean, it's funny because I just finished Everlasting Man by Chesterton, mm-hmm. which I haven't touched in a long time. Yeah. And going through it while I was painting upstairs on double speed, as one does. Of course. Like, his, his argument is that, like, Jesus doesn't fit in any nation. Jesus, the words he said doesn't, doesn't come from any culture in the sense that it's then impossible to enter into any culture and then change it. And it's true. Like, it's, it, it comes from Judaism. Like, you can't understand Jesus' words abstracted from first century, second temple Judaism. Simultaneously, what he did is transcultural, or it is a culture that goes into every culture, and it finds the true, the good, and the beautiful, and adopts it unto itself. And and it discards aggressive. So it's not the syncretism of the Romans. Like, I was going to ask you about that because he brings up that a lot. Like, the Protestant is scared of the Catholic because they're scared of the syncretism, the supposed syncretism of, well, you just adopted and all your councils, just Greek philosophy and then Roman philosophy and then Roman, you know, cult that you turned into the communion of saints. But it was like, no, these are true. And if it's true, it's not syncretism to win over people. It's like this is this is the truth radiating out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that, so the the difference between Catholicism and syncretism. I mean, that, those those are old arguments, right? I mean, that, that, those are like the. I, th- I think most of us now, are like, man, I wish I could have those arguments every <laughs> every day. Uh, other than the stuff that we we, we largely have to do. I'm with, a wolf. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's right. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a fur thing. Right? I'm a furry or whatever that is. Uh, yeah, so those those are old arguments, right? Uh, but they're important. They're still they they actually what what I find interesting is they are old. Those those are arguments that are yeah. that are as old as Christianity, actually. But now they're they're actually internal Catholic arguments. Mm-hmm. Is that there's been a sort of penetration into the life of the Catholic Church that has allowed for some of those arguments to sort of gain purchase for people. And so so you you know it's like well what's the difference between Catholicism and syncretism? And the difference is, is that there's an ordering principle, which is Christ himself. That's the ordering principle. 
So what happened in the ordinary, I mean, I think it's an amazing thing, actually. I mean, obviously, I think it's an amazing thing. But it's an amazing thing in the sense that there were these these, these particular prayers and these particular traditions, which these, these groups of Anglicans were saying, these things make us want to be Catholic. And we're ready to become Catholic. We, we will become Catholic. But we think that these things actually help us helped us get there. Yeah. And it would be awfully nice if... Um, if we could keep them, that, that's I mean that's kind of a simple way to say it, right? <laughs> Gee golly, Pope John Paul II, it'd be awfully yeah, nice. It'd be awful nice <laughs> if we could, if we if we could keep them. And so then the church said, "Well, we have this objective criteria. So what what secretism doesn't have is any objective criteria to say right. to say, well, how do we discern between these things, right? So you look out at the world right now. I mean, this is of course a, a scandalous, but it's true is that. What what is the unitive principle between let's say the aberrational sexual ethics of the day, whether that's homosexual practice or transgender things, and climate change and immigration and race? What's what's the ordinary principle? Well, there isn't one. It's just the the new thing. It, it, the the internet pops up the new thing. I mean, and and Ukraine, right? Uh, and it just pops mm-hmm. a new thing, and then the people who are on the cycle they go on to the next thing, and and they're they're not seeking an, an internal principle that actually unites all of them as a coherent reality. Whereas uh, the Catholic faith actually just does just the opposite: is it seeks to integrate everything into who Christ is. As the, as actually, I mean, what you said, Mike, is actually exactly right: is that uh, Christ is a Jew. But, I mean, it doesn't take a very close reading of the New Testament. I mean, of the Gospels to say Christ fit sort of difficultly within Judaism of the day. Um, I mean, he, he clearly as a Jew is seeking to fulfill all that means to be Jewish and, and also exceeding it uh, to, the, to, to the anger of uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of, of the day. Um, and so there's a, there, there is an ordinary principle. And so what, what happened in the ordinary is that the, the church applies that ordinary principle to these things that, that people from outside the church are saying, you know, these things here actually make us want to join your group. And so could you look at them? I mean, this is, this is a bloodless way to talk about it. But could you look at them and say, are these things Catholic? So it's the difference. So this is the thing. Like, you're seeing the logos, right? The, yeah, the, the, the seeds of the logos scattered throughout Anglican. Precisely. Yeah. Which actually <clears throat> came from Catholicism yeah, in, in a very real way. And then you're saying, but these particular things ought to be preserved because they ought, they already are thoroughly Catholic, and they like, right. like when you talk about the, yeah. the bridge, right? You're earlier, yeah, that's you, what you, I was going to say. You're about the bridge, right? Yeah. And and the way you're talking about is like so often we get so so invested in the bridge, but it becomes like a bridge to nowhere, bridge right? To, exactly. It's like well, we need to worry about the bridge. We need to worry about the bridge. We need to worry about the bridge. You're like, well, where is the bridge taking people? Like, <laughs> like what, what? no, I asked you a, a question. Where, where, where does the bridge go? And then. Yeah. Like, no, 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 I'm serious. Where, where does the bridge lead to? And 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 what happens in the ordinary is like, no, actually, these things are a bridge that leads to Catholicism. It leads to Rome. It, yeah, it, yeah, it leads to Rome and to all that that means. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah. well, that being the case, yeah. and then what's happened in the intervening ten years is as as the ordinary has very haltingly, I mean, and let's be honest, uh, there there's no one standing for the ordinary. I mean, in America, in England, in Australia, really and truly, there's, there, you know, it isn't like the USCCB is going out and saying, "Do you know?" Yeah, there's, there's a thing. There's this new thing out there called Bishop, the personal, yeah, called the personal ordinary of the chair of St. Peter, uh, which you should, you know, investigate and look into. I mean, it's just not happening, and, and, and no one should expect that to happen, actually. And yet, and yet, what's happening 
uh, entirely by osmosis, entirely by word of mouth, is that the ordinary, uh, we, we are, we're living the faith, uh, we're, we're baptizing people, we're catechizing people, we're converting people, we're nourishing people in the sacraments, as every Catholic uh, community does, and people are finding out about it and coming to it, and lifelong Catholics, even Irish Catholics, are saying, huh, huh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yes, yes, actually, that, that, that expresses what I believe, yeah. what I've always believed, and I'm sort of surprised by it. And that's what you're saying. Actually, I'm sort of surprised, and and, and and a little <laughs> sort of confused. I'm pissed off, maybe. There's another. There's another element to this. I, I don't know how much longer this can go on. I have a a relatively large theory about this, actually. Um, and and the relatively large theory. I'm, I'm not thinking about the bishop. This is like, jeez, you idiot, stop talking. But the relatively <laughs> large theory about this actually has everything with, with me being from Oklahoma and really being from Oklahoma. And so one of the things that, that people and, – and no one knows what Oklahoma is actually like. Um, and, oh, and, you're from Oklahoma. I didn't know that. And, and what, what Oklahoma is actually like is a place which is the end of the world. So the, yeah. the majority of people who came to Oklahoma who settled it are people who had been in America for a very, very long time. It was not the place that they came off the boat and they went and settled it. The East Coast, all of the East Coast, yeah. the the Upper Midwest, the, the Upper Midwest, right? So they built the Erie Canal. I mean, John Hughes, the Archbishop, the first Archbishop of, of New York City, stood at the docks in New York City. He's like, "I am the Catholic Bishop here. I am your legitimate authority. There are too many people in New York City. You take the boat on the Erie Canal and go to Wisconsin." And they're <laughs> like, "Yes, Your Excellency, off we go." And now they have the Vatican of Wisconsin. Well, have you ever heard of that? I mean, truly, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, in, in parts of Michigan and all, yeah. all, yeah, yeah, and all and in Minnesota, all yeah, that stuff, right? So <laughs> I mean, it's funny, right? It's like they're like, yes, okay. Uh, Oklahoma's not like that. Yeah. Oklahoma mm-hmm. is 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 largely the 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 low breeding. Uh, I not inbreeding. That's Arkansas. Low breeding. But 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 there's a, there's a relationship there. Uh, the low breeding. Um, not Irish, but but actually Scotch Irish yeah. people, the, the the Protestant version that came very early into America, uh, into the various ports and harbors, came down the Appalachians into the South, uh, through through Georgia and Alabama, across what we call a twenty now into Texas and then up into Oklahoma, and those people have been been in America for three hundred years or something like that, right? So what does that matter? Well, what it matters is that when I was growing up. I didn't know anybody who'd ever been to Europe. We thought going to Memphis, Tennessee was very exotic. <laughs> For me, it was Springfield. <laughs> Missouri. Missouri. Yeah. Very it's going exotic. overseas. I was like, oh, wow, that's near the Grand Old Opry. <laughs> y'all, 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 went to, y'all went to Bass Pro. Yeah, go to Springfield, Missouri. Y'all went to Bass Pro. <laughs> oh, gosh. What is this place? It's so funny. To, to us, Tulsa was like a metropolis really? because it had a handful of yeah. Art Deco buildings. Surely. From, what's his name? Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright and his disciples, like, oh, the Methodist Church, and uh, my sure. dad worked Boston at the Texaco Met- building. Boston Methodist. Right? Yeah. Boston and there was all these things that just drew you to it. But you, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you, right? And, and so we never knew anybody who went, who, who truly went anywhere. Actually, <laughs> yeah. I mean, really and truly. And like, your family may have been a little different because you have people from Philadelphia. But, but the, I never. This is a funny thing. I never knew my family. My cousin lives here in the Woodlands. I never knew. I never knew anyone in my family because when we came to Oklahoma. 
for 25 years. They got you. We, <laughs> yeah, it was like a giant net. Uh, no, but no one ever came here. Yeah, Lord, no. And we never went there until I only went once when I was 16. Mm. Lord, no. I mean, yeah. and so, what I, what, so what I learned about this in my life is that there, there really is well, what I would call, and it's not, it's not precise, but, but what I would call a west of the Mississippi mentality. And, and that, that's not everywhere west of the Mississippi, but, but it, there is a, a west of the Mississippi beginning in Arkansas and, and, and upper Louisiana. Well, southern Louisiana is Catholic, but upper Louisiana, uh, most, of, most of Missouri, not all of Missouri, but most of Missouri, the, the non-Catholic person of Missouri, yeah. basically all Oklahoma and, and, and most of Texas. And those people, they, they thought that going east meant going to Memphis yeah. or maybe going to New Orleans or somewhere like that or, or like – yeah, they're real lucky they can go to St. Louis. People in Tulsa think that St. Louis is the hub of the world, yeah. right? You drive up I-44 and you go up to St. Louis and you think, man, you see the arches and they got the the Cardinals and then I mean that's it. I mean, that, you know what? That's actually that's absolutely true. I know. <laughs> St. Louis was always for us the place because they had major league everything and we just had minor league. Everything. Yeah, that's right. But it's the you place. Married someone from St. Louis. And I did marry someone from St. Louis. Right. And that completely and debunked that like, your position. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Miller, my, my best friend growing up, he's from Muskogee, Oklahoma. Yeah. Rough Riders. And <laughs> Home of Rough Riders. Yeah. And, uh, and he, his family would go to St. Louis and I remember him saying stuff about Joplin and St. Louis and just being like, yeah, but now I don't think that because I've been to St. Louis a bunch of times and I hate that place. Yeah, it's and trash. you live in Houston. Well, you live in Houston. Oh, I live in Houston. It's so nice. Yeah, it's different. But people there, I mean, yeah. people in Tulsa, oh, yeah. so people in Tulsa think that St. Louis is the pinnacle of society, and they constantly. I mean, people in, in Tulsa are constantly trying to get themselves rooted into being in from the Midwest. Yeah. And so, so there's a West Mississippi <laughs> mentality that's very, very different that people who aren't from that part of the world don't understand. And so, mm-hmm. so when I lived on the East Coast and I became a Catholic, right, and I was living in North Carolina. Uh, there are people who are Irish that I knew, for example. This is one example. And his grandparents still live in Ireland. Well, they would fly mm-hmm. to Ireland. They yeah. go see him. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> you fly to Ireland? Like we, we. You know, it's funny that now you say that. My friend Brandon. Yeah. Like the whole time we were just like, "What do you mean your parents are going out of town for a week to go to Ireland?" Yeah. I've never known anyone to do that. That's a, good no point. That's a very good point. There's no concept. Even though my parents are from back east and half our church was from back east or up north, whatever. Yeah, you, yeah, go, to that's I- so you, funny. you go to Ireland? That is what? so funny. You're putting so me in touch with roots. Truly, right? And, and, and so the, actually, the person I'm thinking in particular, so he's Irish. He's 100% Irish. He married a, a, an, an Italian lady. And so, like, they got family in Italy. It's like, they fly to Italy, go see their family. I'm like, yeah. you go to Italy? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, we we went to, every once in a while we went to Kansas. <laughs> and you ever we, been to Topeka? And when, we saved, our, like and when we saved our money, we went to Branson, Missouri for oh, vacation. Branson, thank you. That's what I was thinking about. I kept saying Joplin. Yeah, Branson, no, it was Branson. It's Branson. That is. Uh, you ever go to Silver Dollar City? Uh, absolutely, I puked oh. several times on the rise in Silver Dollar oh, City. Oh man, Silver now, Dollar City is where point, eighth grade graduation. There's a point in all this actually is that that American society changes. West of the Mississippi. If you want to read a fantastic book, by the way, a really, truly fantastic book. It's written by one of the great historians of Texas called Walter Prescott Webb. It's called The Great Plains. He was a, tech, he was a, he was a professor at UT back when UT was a legitimate academic institution. And, we had to put that in. Yeah, you make sure that's in the state. Keep that. Keep in. keep that part. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Uh, I'll add some reverb. It'll be nice. Uh, and he wrote a book on the Texas Rangers, but he also wrote a book just something called The Great Plains. And his his generic argument is that the the uh, 98th parallel creates a divide in, in the in in not only the geography of America but in the culture of America. Mm-hmm. The, the 98th parallel basically runs through Austin, West Oklahoma City, 
if you're thinking about it, actually, Chickasha's on the ninth parallel. Safe. Yeah, Chickasha's on the ninth parallel. So Chickasha lot in those places. But uh, and, and he he talks about the invention of certain things, like like barbed wire. So there's not enough there's not enough stone to to build to build stone walls. There's not enough, there's not enough timber to build fence. Yeah. So you got to invent barbed wire. Yeah. That's the only way you can exist out there. Yeah. Uh, so all that to say, in my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion. I, I tend to think that the ordinary has a particular purchase in a world that is sort of shorn from a lot of those those old ties, mm. uh, but that has roots in in an English heritage because the English heritage is the world right now. If you can speak English, sure, you can speak to anybody in the world almost anywhere you go in the world. If you speak the English language, and but but you speak the English language right now in this world not as an Englishman, but as as an American. And when people think of America, they don't think about Philadelphia. They don't think about New York City. They think about cowboys and all that kind of crap, yeah. right? No, that's true. That's, that's, that's true. Right. Oh, American cowboy. Yeah, that's shoot, right. Shoot. Yeah, right. That's right. right. Uh, and and so unrooted cosmopolitan no family the all Lake alone Erie, Lake Erie uh, on fire please shake hand of neighbor you don't know welcome yes America he's good he's good uh, much money I actually so so I actually think there there's there there's an evangelical tip to the ordinary that has hardly been explored in my mm. opinion that actually has a lot of purchase for a culture that is very uprooted. That that people that the west of the Mississippi culture remains a very uprooted place, but in some ways is actually the quintessentially American place. I mean, because I'm from there, so I'm biased. But yeah. but I actually think it's true. Is that the dislocation that is evident? I mean, you think about more and more. Like, who in America thinks about Europe? Less and less people. Mm-hmm. You know that 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 look back. Catholicism used to always look back to, to Europe. I mean, like I'm saying, like you know these people that I know who like I have, my grandparents live in Ireland. You're like, Really? <laughs> That's not the way forward in Catholicism in this country. In yeah. this country, it's it's actually living into its Americanness, which which in some ways is a very American thing, right? It's like at the beginning of the founding of this country, is like we're done looking back. I mean, they always look back, yeah. of course, yeah. but in some ways, like we're done looking back. Let's look forward. Yeah. Uh, and so, actually, my reading of what the the life of the ordinary is is like let's look let's look forward. Uh, to this inheritance that we that we have been given, that is that is in some ways um, very peculiar, but also in some ways is exactly fitting for life in America in the twenty first century. Yeah. The ordinary it is weird because it's a new thing that's an old thing. That's right. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's it's like, funny like America. Sorry. Yeah, right. yeah, and it's it's funny. I remember at where, where was it? Um, maybe it was Pope John Paul II or someone visiting Pope John Paul II and like a group of European nations. But he's like, compared to your country. The, the American was saying, compared to your country, our country is new. Your countries are old. Compared to your governments, our country is old. And your countries are new because they none of the European powers have kept their governments in play like we have. You know, right. And it, it's fascinating to see and to even think that way. But as Americans, yeah, we kind of – there's an inherent well, and it's in, and the, rejection maybe we in can, our identity. You don't have to answer this right? fully. We can end on this. But it's interesting, liturgy discussions, particularly within – the Novus Ordo generally are, it's so fun. It's, it's almost like a, like a reactionary thing is like, as soon as you start talking about traditional things, it's almost without fail. Somebody's going to say, yeah, but what about Africa? Oh, uh, absolutely. What, absolutely. What, what about the Africans? Well, are, are they going to like, I get what you're the, saying about the, the tradition. The first time I ever <clears throat> talked on catching foxes 
in depth about uh, about liturgy. I'm sorry right. about Africa. In depth about liturgy. <laughs> Your the, first three episodes were yeah, on the Africa. first comment was an honest like seeking. You know, okay. You say all this stuff, but what about people live in sub-Saharan Africa right. where they don't have any of this stuff? Like, are they just supposed to kill their culture in order to adopt this European right. thing from the 1600s? And right, you know whatever. Yeah, and, and it's almost like, well, if you can't answer what about Africa, then your argument, kind of whatever you're proposing, seems to kind of be resting on sand. But the ordinary, I'm sure it's the same in in, in you know, Evergina Chaley. I'm just speaking locally. Nobody's asking that question. Um, you, you know, no one's asking. Well, what about what about Africa? Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. You know, and I mean, that's that's a change. That's a change, yeah, right? Yeah, that's a change. And you see that variously in our culture right now too. I think is that we're not asking at our parish. Well, how would they do the ordinary in Africa? Right. Well, I I don't know. I don't know anything about it. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I barely know. I like I said, I barely know. I, mean, I moved to North Carolina. I'll tell you a crazy thing. I'm in North Carolina. And I met all these people who are from the Northeast. And I was like, I, I don't understand these people. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, the people from New Jersey, heaven help us. My parents, my parents, it's so funny. When they meet someone from the Northeast, it is like a ray of sunshine into their lives. <laughs> because they have been living in exile in the diaspora of Oklahoma and Texas. My mom, literally, when I went to Franciscan, my, she came up with me to help move and all that stuff. But... uh I met Father Dom, who did the liturgy stuff at Franciscan. I'm and Father Dom was from Brooklyn. He was one of the friars. And I was telling my mom, but mom was like, well, I said, what'd you do today? And I was like, oh, you know, we did this and we did this and this. And I, I met um, the friars do an ice cream social. And I met Father Dom. And he's uh, from Brooklyn. First words out of my mother's mouth. Did you tell him we're from Philly? And I was like, what? And she did you tell him we're from Philly? <laughs> I go, did I tell the priest that my mommy is from Philadelphia? <laughs> No, shockingly didn't come up to the priest not from Philadelphia. And she she was so livid. Yeah, so I'll tell you, I got, I got an inverse story. So I'm North Carolina, and, and most Catholics in North Carolina are from the Northeast. They're from New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, places like that. And uh, I was working at a big parish, 6,000 families or so, something like that. And, uh, and now I'm like... Uh, you were a youth minister, right? That's right. That's right. I did my penance on earth. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, big parish, we're trying to confirm, you know, all these kids, 200-something kids a year, whatever. And, it, and it's, it's a very difficult situation for, 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 yeah, right, for a lot of reasons. And, you know, you're getting all these random emails from people. And I get this email from this mom who wants to talk to me. And, I, of course, I always take it, right? And I'm always willing to talk to them. I'm always willing to, to try to work through whatever they're needing to work through. So I said, all right, yeah, I'll take it this, you know, I'll, I'll come out with you and talk to you. So I get to this, talking to this lady. And she says, well, let's go to lunch. All right, so we go to lunch, and i waiting for her, and I meet her, and she says, hi. I said, where are you? The first thing I said, I said, I said, where are you from? She said, I'm from Nazareth, Texas. I said, all right, well, we're going to have a nice lunch. And it turns out Nazareth, Texas is out in the Panhandle, Texas, right? Nice. And so it's like two and a half hours from my... Might as well be Oklahoma. Yeah, it might as well be, for, especially in western Oklahoma. It didn't look like a Panhandle. And we had, we had this long conversation, and she's like, I knew it. I knew you. She sniffed me out. I heard you give a talk to the kids, and I knew you were from my part of the world. Uh, uh, she like went on and on and on about it. Like, yeah, it's true. It's all true. So, and it's, you know, that's a real thing, right? That's a real thing for people. Where, where you're from really matters. And, and, that, and I think that, you know, when, when I think about the ordinary, in some ways we have to be willing to say, well, it's not necessary for everybody. 
but it's 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 a Catholic expression. It's a it's part of the Catholic faith, but but not every every person has to have their faith enriched by it. I think that's that's actually fine, um, and and the church isn't seeking to impose it upon everybody. But but it hits for lots of people, um, for lots of people. I, mean, I actually think who who actually are seeking that strangely, right? It's like sort of seeking that identity, of like I'm from somewhere. Yeah, and and it, and even if it's ne- not necessarily where I, where I'm from, uh, I'm from a place, and that that the the insistence on on the kind of locality that's rooted within a larger thing, which is the Catholic Church, actually really resonates with me. I think that there's there's an element that the the ordinary, which you know, I mean, who knows if if Pope Benedict had that in his mind when he wrote the Constitution or not? That's not for me to decide. I think that that practically speaking, that that actually has a lot of purchase. Um, and it has, it has a kind of purchase for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, because I, I also I have no I have no sort of Englishness, <laughs> uh, as it were. Uh, I mean, I've never been to England, um, but but I, now I will say you've read all the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, I took a class on C.S. Lewis. You know, the bishops talk on building the cemetery, and then after that talk, you know, mom and dad, my my in laws, right? They said, well. We want to be buried at presentation. And and we were already solidified at presentation. There wasn't any ambiguity. But that was the well now or people gonna be buried here. Yeah, right, right. And, and and you know, even the girl saying when Oma and Opa die, then we can go see them after mass. Right. And so Is this the the bishop's talk? Is this where he talks about his father? Yeah. And so I've heard this secondhand through Michelle. And it moved her so much, thinking about her, so Brian's wife, thinking about my parents and my, you know, like, yeah. the comfort of seeing his father. Is that what it was? Yeah, because well, yeah, I think he moved his father from from San Francisco. But but also, too, that we, you know, we live next door to my in-laws. And so, so it, all of these things sort of coalesced with, then we started having the conversation of, well, we just heard the bishops talk on, on us, on, on death, being buried there. And then it was this sort of like, well, hell, what are we going to do when you die with the house? It'd be weird. It'd be so bizarre to have uh, somebody else move in to that house. You know, it's like, you know, Therese was, you know, we basically, she was kind of raised there. You know, I mean, the girls, like you were saying, the kids only know being pretty much next door to their, to their grandparents. And then that, of course, starts, well, Mom and dad start saying, "Well, maybe we should get land next to presentation. Maybe we should move next to the Gormleys." Oh, or hard, Gormleys. Hard, to, hard to do now, by the way. Get land next oh, to presentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Difficult, difficult to obtain. Well, we could do the commune with that, like yeah, six million dollars. I, I don't recommend. I don't. I don't recommend that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, want everyone, I want everyone to stay sane. Well, so uh, right. So there's a there's an interesting thing that that's happening in our in our time is that like like I said that the suburbs are the dominant form of, of active life in our culture. Mm-hmm. Just, that's just the truth. I, yeah. I think that's, I mean. They, you know what Fulton Sheen called that? What's that? The suburban captivity of the churches. We've lost the cultural influence because we've left the cities, and now we're spread out in this wannabe rural area. Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, that, and that's right. Um, and and so you take it back to what Michael was saying earlier about we, we have to find ways to resist that. To find ways to resist that requires us to accept certain limitations, that are really hard to to accept, actually, and so you know, for us, the presentation, you know, some of the things that that's required for us to accept is like, 
will kind of be on the windy road. You know, I talk about this. So, you know, if people know the geography of where we're at, there, there's a straight road that's a divided four-lane road that you can drive really fast on. And then there's our road, which which runs right up against it, which you can drive 25 miles an hour on. There's alligators. And uh, and there's literally just arms that drop down when the floodwater comes. Because <laughs> right, it's right. like, we're not going to help you with flooding. Right. You're yeah, just, yeah. don't go. You're going to have to turn right out of presentation if it rains pretty heavy because you ain't getting out of there. The road has flooded once or twice. And yet we picked the, the windy road, and, and that, there's a long story. Well, well, why did we pick the windy road? Well, because we couldn't afford we couldn't afford a straight road. You know, our, our diocese is small, and the people who started our parish were small, and so we couldn't afford to be on the big the big straight road. Um, and so we're on the windy road. But then that actually that actually forms in a really interesting way, like the character of our community, which mm-hmm. is like yeah. this little place is on this little windy road. There's no sign to get there. Uh, you you. It, yeah, it's just and I drove by it during the Midsummer Night's Dream play. I drove straight by. It. <laughs> I was ten minutes past, and I was like, "Holy crap! I don't know any of this stuff." It did. It did eventually, like three months. Nick's Automotive. Where the hell? <laughs> Great. Yeah, that's a free. That's a free plug. You better get your. You better, you better get your real. Yeah, Nick's Automotive. Hey, Nick, Nick, is, Nick is a great guy, by the way. Nick is a great guy. Actually, well, we, I know and, him. And that you know, it's like we had just insulation. That was visible now, we before we didn't have, we didn't, before we didn't have the insulation. Yeah, before all we had was what's called ra- radiant barrier. Yeah. Radiant barrier is just the, this, little, this little this little this yeah. little stuff that you put up on the on the tin to to make the tin not so hot. Uh, mm, yeah, and, right, and that right. was actually degraded and been eaten by by moths and and uh, rats and everything else. So that's that's how we started. And yet, what that actually that actually did for us was it created a kind a particular kind of Catholic community where somebody said. Well, this is this is us. Yeah. Uh, come hell or high water. I mean, truly hell. I mean, yeah. I mean, really high water. Hell being COVID and high water being literally actually high actually high water, and 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 not every Catholic community has that luxury, of course, mm-hmm. but but actually it creates the 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 possibility for people to say, I mean, I, I, I think about this, how different this is in our time, is people we have people in our parish who say. I'm not going to take this job because I don't want to leave my parish. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find that to be a good thing. Um, yeah, agreed. Because now we haven't even started selling the plots for the cemetery yet, uh, which, you know, it's like, yeah, buy now and you can get them for half off. Enter uh, right. Gormley. Uh, chase, chasing foxes. Yeah. Chasing. Son of a. Catching. 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 That's catching the, the NAB version. Sorry. The New American Bible version of it. I uh, apologize. I'm an RSVCE guy and guy. The best thing is. I'm a King James guy, to be honest. I know this because me and Brian, uh, I'm, I'm writing this guidelines for reception of Holy Communion for our parish. So Brian has seen my numerous revisions and all this stuff. Underneath guidelines for reception of Holy Communion, there's a quote, and the quote is, Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, therefore let us keep the feet. And I looked up 30 translations, every Catholic translation, and I said to myself, I already know what translation this is, and it ain't. The Dewey Ring. <laughs> <laughs> and I copied and pasted. I copied it. The RSV, the NAB, the NABRE. All right, fine. All of it. And then I got to the fine. King James, not even the authorized version, which includes the Deuterocanonical books. It's a commentary. No, the King James version. Uh, King James version. There it is. There yeah. it is. First yeah. Corinthians. It's so good. It's a First Corinthians, yeah. yeah. Must, must be. Yeah, that's the difference. Well, no, it is funny. I mean, because we, we, I mean, we've had discussions with certain parishioners where about six or seven months ago, they said something like, 
yeah, you know, our, the, the flexibility of the husband's work would allow us to you know, travel and go here and go there. And now the discussion is, I don't think we would do that. Even though we would return to the parish, it would be like a, a sort of a, a brief travel thing. Where we would go, we wouldn't have this. Yeah. And so I mean, think, the, think, the think concern, about that, right? Like think about that reality. I mean, you want that. Uh, so I, I think about one thing I would love to have in my my dumb vanity in my life. I mean, which I have a lot. I might love to have a cow. What? A cow. A cow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a cow. You said a, you said that with an Oklahoma accent. Like, what are you saying? A cow. Cow. Kind of like how you chant. It's like the last syllable. We don't need it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you would think that the word "cow" would be an easy word to say, but I can't. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't say "cow," right? Cow. Okay. So, I, am I? Am I? Am I? Am I in dumb mind? I would love to have a cow, right? In my little backyard, I have a cow out there. Go milk it. Get fresh milk. Make my own cheese and all, all that kind of crap, right? But you know what the reality is of a cow? Is that if you're gonna have a cow, you gotta milk that thing twice a day, every single day. They're not. They're not leaving. They're not going. They're not going on vacation. Nope. There's no, like, just like, I'm going to stay out drinking late with my buddies or <laughs> crap like that. I would love to stay and drink and podcast, but I got a cow. But I got a cow. <laughs> I got a cow. His teats are engorged, so I got to go home. Hopefully it's not his teeth. Oh, right. Well, we live in It's a new world. It's a new it's world. A new, we talked about this earlier. I mean, we, we don't like, like, our world doesn't like that idea, truly, yeah. is like that you'd be so tied to a place. Yeah. You want to read a, a fantastic, you know, you were talking about Wendell Berry earlier. Fantastic. I mean, Wendell doesn't exactly do this, but if you want to know the truth, Wendell maps himself onto Andy Catlett. Almost, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. not, not exactly, but, yep. but closely. And the, and so the Andy Catlett stories are really close. So Andy Catlett tells, one of the Andy Catlett stories, he goes to San Francisco. It's fascinating. Fascinating yep. thing. But you got to find somebody to take care of his cow. And and for us, that's just that's just hard to think about. I don't think we, we don't have anything like that. No, but 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 imagine, but this is my point, is like imagine Catholics in the United States saying, I got a parish I can't leave. Yeah, yeah. I had a very wealthy diocese offer me to go to the diocesan level. That's the, if, if you think of it in terms of a career, that's the, the next rung. I said, I have history here. Like, my boss was my youth minister. I said, but more than that, there's a woman who comes over, pulls her baby, care, her baby stroller right into my garage, Angie, makes herself coffee without asking anyone, and sits down and makes a cup for my wife, too. And they have a 45-minute chat in the morning, and then she leaves. I said, how much does that cost how much are you going to put in my salary mm. to make up for abandoning angie and joey yeah. so that was five years ago it's diocese of cleveland right it's the dirtiest of the five great lakes what do you think <laughs> what do you, so uh, balls in your court holy man Cole's uh, back. Yeah. don't you love god <laughs> the funny the, the funny thing was when i'm we moved here which you know for us is across town right we did a cross town move from behind the Costco to here. Those that same the reason why we moved to this spot is because the mucks were the first ones. So they're our friends. They were they got us looking over here, and it was the Joneses that got us dipping into presentation from every so often. And then all of a sudden, it became a thing for us. Like nothing exists for us over there. All of our community is, or mm. like the mucks are like family. And the fact that they were coming over here because Deacon Baldies is over here and all that stuff. It would be a game changer for them. You know, I work at St. Anthony's, eight minutes away from St. Anthony's. It's all this stuff. But the biggest thing that started that I realized happened was when we were looking for homes, literally the two questions we asked ourselves is how long will it take to get to the Joneses and how long will it take to get to church? That was it. Those are the only two questions anyone asked. And the fact that we moved here as opposed to the first house that we looked at was 
literally the middle point between the Joneses and St. Anthony. We, I mean, we loved that house. We loved all the spaces right near my cousin who lives here that I, you know, didn't know growing up until now. And we were like, oh, this would be awesome. We realized that if we moved up here because the Joneses go to presentation and it's on the way to presentation, we would lose nothing. We would lose nothing because they're so involved in the life of the church and the Lamberts are so involved in the life of the church and the Spears are so involved in the life of the church. Being here, even if I never even went to a presentation, it's still, I'm a part of the life of my community. And I can't even conceive of, like if someone walked up and said, I'm going to give you $200,000 a year to leave here, I have mm-hmm. no... How do you quantify? How do you quantify friends? How do you quantify family? My parents well, live 20 minutes from here. Now, I don't like them, but they're still there. Well, I, mean, I, th- I think well, you would, Father Fletcher had said, which station is one with presentation, the kids, it seems like some of them are almost going in this direction where and that they might settle here, you know? And, and so it's it's kind of like, yeah, so just wondering about all the things you, that we've already said about wanting to leave, refusing jobs, but also the kids, like our kids being like, well, no, I, I don't want to move away because presentation's here. I don't, or, you know. No, but my, my heart for presentation is, I told this to Shannon, if I die and I don't have a funeral mass in the ordinary, I don't, I don't want to be buried in the in the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, right? Because I saw Juanita's mass, yeah. And I've I, this is kind of weird, but I've gone back to that video, that live stream that we have. I've yeah, probably we watched it, about it. I've watched it like three times, yeah. Of a, a, a girl that I, I I had met maybe once, but I had no connection to any of that. It was pre presentation. It was when I was more dogging on y'all. Oh, it's self selecting community of liturgical uh, sociopaths. But whatever I said, all true. Yeah. Oh, true. And then it turns out I was one of them. <laughs> but no, but the, the funeral mass, the funeral mass is what I tell everyone it's supposed to be, which is right. this is where we come at the occasion of a death. This is where we worship God together. Right. And it's like when I watch the mass, the, the Requiem mass, mm-hmm. I'm, I just, I, I don't have any other words other than dear Jesus, if I could die like this. I'm going to tell you a crazy story. All right. So, so that's right. So we, we buried this girl who died in, in a horrible car accident. She's 18 years old. And, and thanks to Father Tom Rafferty for letting us use the church, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so she's, she was a member. So many people were going to come. Yeah, so she's a member of presentation. We can see, you know, if it's all, sk- if it's, if it's all skinny people, we can, <laughs> we can fit 250 people. I know, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but then if Gomer shows up, we got like 18, yeah, maybe 19. Yeah, Gormley, we're down to 225. Hey, could you skinny people go to confession? <laughs> uh, and so, so Father Tom very generously gave us, let's use uh, St. Anthony's. Yeah. yeah, and she was a part of St. Anthony's school, I think. She, I think she got into the parochial school. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. I think so. And the, and the, and the family got on the they had been there, there before too, and uh, and so there was a connection there, and we knew there was going to be over a thousand people probably, and so so we needed obviously a much bigger space, and so we did, and and he was extremely extremely generous towards us. I mean, I mean, unbelievably so actually, and just let's do what we do, and and and, and exercise all 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 the traditions, and all the peculiarities that we have, and in COVID time, there yeah during the plague and all that all that stuff. Um, and so we did. So there ended up being like twelve or thirteen hundred people at this at this. I think actually. I asked the bishop this. He he wouldn't he wouldn't confirm or deny because you know he wouldn't give me the the, the pleasure. Uh, I, I think it's the, the second largest mass that's ever happened in the life of the ordinariate. Wow! His, his ordination to the pre, uh, to the to the episcopacy being the largest. I think it's the second largest mass that we've ever celebrated. That's uh, incredible, according to our rites. Um, and uh, so we did. So we went to St. Anthony's, and it was a beautiful, a very very beautiful thing. 
And, um, and I'll tell you the most extraordinary thing about it is that we, we, we sung her out uh, to the imperadisum and took her right to the hearse. And there was a man there who, who had, his children had gone to school with her. And he was, he was not a pallbearer, but he was, he was right there and very close friend of the family. And the man looked at me and said, we all want to die now because we want to be buried like this. And that guy died uh, like six months later. Mm-hmm. And we did the exact same thing for him. And the same, and same so so same, we we had the mass of St. Anthony's, we had the, the funeral mass of St. Anthony's, and, the, and it had the same music, the whole thing. Two for and, two. It was two for two. Uh, but he told me that I, I remember that I remember that as yeah. though it was today. Is that he he looked at me and said, "I I want to die mm-hmm. because I want to be buried like this." Uh, if, I mean, when when you're a Christian person, what's the point of the Christian faith, which is to prepare you to die well? And and so like we had a long conversation now about liturgy and everything else in between, but you get down to the bottom of it, and like a person who says to their priest, "I want to die," because I want to be buried like this. That is as a Christian person, <laughs> it's like, what is it? And then and the guy dies, and we did the exact same thing for him. Uh, it's a that's a mark to me. I mean, the, it was so. What you said is like that's so moving. What this guy said to me was, "I'm prepared to die," and he did, yeah. and we buried him exactly the same way. Yeah, because he attended. Yeah, to, mm-hmm. yeah. He said, "I'm ready." I watched it on video, and even that, my heart ached. I mean, he said, "I'm ready." The guy said, "I'm ready to die," and he did. I mean, he died. He's, I mean, it's, it, it, that's crazy. I mean, it's, it's also. I mean, his own death was a kind of a tragedy too. But yeah. but he uh, but he was ready because because he experienced something that he said, "If this is what death means, mm-hmm. I'll sign me up." I'm that. See, and to me, that's for, okay. Going back to one of our original conversations, the context of that of the requiem mass versus where they come to Brian here, who's in charge of funerals, and there's a, a list of demands, a series of consumer choices. I want this song. Well, we don't play Elton John's Rocket Man during the liturgy. <laughs> okay, well, I want my brother to do the, the lectoring. Well, you know, he is a... Uh, he chews gum. He hasn't been in the church for 30 years. So yeah, well, I, he's a fourth-level vegan. He didn't eat anything with a shadow. <laughs> like, so. that's his religion. <laughs> uh, he's actually a Hindu. He's going to read... You know what I mean? Like, they come before us with a list of demands... Because the liturgy for many people, not for everyone and not in every place, but the liturgy for many people is meant to be that bridge, which is will give you what you sort of what you want in order to get you into the sacred mysteries of the liturgy, but they never take you there. And so when they don't see it, and that was Father David's argument, right? Like when we Mm. interviewed him was essentially Father David's like, you just need to see the tradition of the church and then you'll get it, but you're not seeing it. So you don't get it. I'm persuaded more and more by that. And well, I think it goes back to the didacticism. It's kind of like you could preach this beautiful homily about how liturgy is supposed to be, and then the liturgy itself is not that. But it's the seeing it and attending it as a you know, as we talked about before, as, as like a it's got to be a modus vivendi, right? It has to be a way of living, and then you and then the veil's pulled off, and then you can't unsee. There, there's a yeah. qu- there's yeah. a question. There's a that's right. There, there's a question too, and. and you know, it, it's uh, I don't, I don't know. You know, people are gonna get really bored with that kind of. See, that's the magic of editing. There's only gonna be twenty minutes of a show. Here. <laughs> yeah, right. but, but they really are gonna get really bored. But but it's actually really important. Is that is is there more than one form of communication? I mean, we've all been to the masses where the the priest, God bless them, is explaining everything he's doing. It's like, and now I'm going to do this. <laughs> well, you could have just done it, Father, <laughs> and we would have seen you do it, and we'd be like, oh, yeah, you did it. Uh, and 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 that that not everything 
has to be explained to be able to be communicative. Right. Not not every deed has to be said. Did you see that I did that? Yeah. Uh, this actually has meaning. What we have received, and again, it, this is so important. It's about what we have received. It isn't about like us imposing this. Mm-hmm. It's rather what we have received has a density, and, and and that's an important word. I actually think density is an important word because a dense thing mm-hmm. takes time for you to to bore into. A a thing that is superficial. You you know you think about. Uh, with your drill, you know a a four inch piece of lumber. It's going to take you some time to, to to bore through it. But a piece of a piece of paper that you write your 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 notes on, you plow right through. Are you saying this as an analogy because I have my Dewalt? I do. Uh, I do. See, right I do. The 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 the, the, uh, the mark of someone who's just moved into a new house, right? I am trying to put up all the crap on my house. Uh, but but it's true, right? It's like something that has density requires a a certain amount of, uh, of intentional. But but there's also a depth to go into, and that and that the the reward of going into that depth is like that you've actually that you've actually gone into it. Whereas, like you know, you plow through, you know, you you break through something very superficial, and that and that that when you're asking questions about rootedness and dying, all those all those kinds of questions actually all come into a single thing of like, is there something for us as Catholics? Is there something that is more than than just a sheet of paper that we poke through? And when we treat you know funeral rites, I mean, and, and we're all guilty of this, right? Like we're all we're all guilty, and I, and, I, and I'm tempted towards this even because you got somebody who's grieving. Like, so our community at, at presentation is very young. It's, it, I mean, in the in, in the demographic world, we're we're on the you know we're on the right side of all these things. You're on the side with the future. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, <laughs> young we, families. Yeah, that's right. Young families who are fertile uh, and who 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 fl- who flex at them at each other about how many children they can have. Like that's that's the demographic presentation. Like I have six. How many do you have? You weak child. Uh, <laughs> all right. You call those birthing hips? <laughs> uh, right. I, mean, I mean, you know, I shouldn't say that, but it's true. Uh, yeah, there is an element. There, there, there is an element of that. Uh, and so we, we have that. So, so that what that means then is like all the dying that we do at presentation right now is almost all tragic dying. Yeah. It is. I mean, almost all the dying we have is like, dang, that person shouldn't have died. And so then the question is, so, so when, I, when it happens, there's this temptation for me as the priest to sentimentalize that death. But, then, but actually then the life of the church actually has a, 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 a substantial reality around it where you said, no, I know that you think that this would be the important thing, but let's do it like this. Let's do it like the way the church has given us to do it, mm-hmm. and, and actually it's going to come out really good. Yep. And it's going it's to come out in a way in which other people come through it. Not only not only, not only going to pray for your dead, beloved departed uh, and, and ask God to receive their soul in mercy, but other people are going to say, I want that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly what happened with Father David. Celebrate. He's like, I will only celebrate the funeral rites the way they are prescribed. And we were talking about yeah, that, yeah. how people who are not Catholic are like the first people to go to Father David and be like, I don't know what you just did, but that, that was incredible. Thank you. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. You see that. Yeah. Do, do it the way it's done. Do it the way it's been given to us. Yeah. But they want, we want to sentimentalize. We want to, Hey, his favorite song, Rocket Man, you know, he was an investor with the Vatican. So we're going to bring it. Celebration of life. It's a celebration of life. Yeah. No, it's not. It's a celebration of the God. Yeah, who, who made us redeem? Them. Well, and and the thing is, like the celebration, <laughs> the celebration life thing. I mean, yeah, how, many, how many hours we got on that? Right, the celebration life thing. All right, who knows all your secrets? Right, a- anybody? 
Brian knows them all. I have a dream journal. I give it to him once a week to read. Yeah, but that's what you write down. This better be a requiem. That's that's what you write down. Yeah. That's what you can remember. Right. A celebration of life, if that's what a funeral mass is or a requiem or the burial of a person, I'm sorry. You, You have just degraded that person. Yep. Because nobody knows their whole life. And nobody, no person is able to communicate their whole life to another person. Yep. No, not a single person. And no other person is able to know entirely who that person is because there is no person who is able to communicate themselves entirely to that other person. And, and it's, you know, it's interesting about that. I've, I've been to a family funeral where parts of the family wanted to declare them a saint. The other said, this person, this person is the spawn of Satan. Yeah, my grandfather yeah. had two families. He, in, in 1950s, inner city Philadelphia, Irish Catholic community, he abandoned his. He had multiple affairs, abandoned his family, never gave him a dollar of child support. Started a whole different family in the suburbs, took care of them, did all that. The woman, the woman that he, I don't know if he's the same woman that he had the affair with, but the, the women used to come to the house to pick him up and to go out on the night on the town. My, I mean, and so when my my grandfather died, I never knew him. He died when I was one. Um, my uh, dad told me the story of my aunts and uncles going to the funeral. And they did it just as a formality. I don't know. I don't think it was a Catholic mass. I don't know what it was. And they get into a limo to go to the burial site. And my Aunt Alicia is in the limo with the other family. And to them, they're all weeping, mourning. This is the saddest day of their life. And, yeah. And she looks at them and she's like, oh, you're you're the bitch who stole my father. Uh, Mm. That's her world. And so when we, we're going to celebrate his life, you know, it's like, well, how about we? I mean, and that's a dramatic. That's a dramatic. That's a very dramatic. But but it's also honest. That's 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 a dramatic and real. I mean, that's a dramatic and real thing, right? But lots of people are not that dramatic. The the thing is, like, that colors it in a really, like, bold. It's it's a contrast. But but it's important, right? But my point is, like, even if, like, that's not true. You married for 70 years or some crazy thing like that and always faithful and always went to mass and prayed the rosary twice a day and, and whatever else. You don't know that part. You don't, you just, if you think that you know all there is to know about a person, you don't know who God is. Mm-hmm. Because the mystery of God is, is so extraordinary. And that, therefore, the mystery of every person created in the image and likeness of God is so extraordinary. And this is why we put every person in black. Because the death of a person, even if they think they were great, it's like, well, then they're gone. <laughs> then they're gone. This person who you're so sure is so great is gone. And that there's a power in that, that people who, like you said, you're talking crap about the ordinary before, and you see the way we do funerals, like, huh, well, it ain't so bad after all. Uh, but that actually has the power, in my, in my view, like you said, not only, not only for, for crap talkers, but, but actually for anybody <laughs> to say, these people know what life is about because, yeah. they, because of the way they observe death. Right. That, that has to be, uh, you know, I, I said earlier that the you know, presentation is like a, a joyful mystery parish. Uh, and that's certainly our thing, but but also uh, we we try to observe death as though it were a, a, a reality that is beyond our our comprehension, um, and we we commit that person, and we, we we just commit them to God, and we allow we we allow God to do the to be the prime the prime mover and the mm-hmm. primary actor mm-hmm. in those things. I mean, uh, because otherwise you you think you think. And it's so easy to think this. You think that you are doing the, th- the best thing for them. Yeah. But 
This is what they would have wanted. This is what they would have wanted. That's the most used phrase, right? Yeah. And and actually, that might be true. But man, I have children. I have children. Y'all have children. <laughs> Yesterday, I have a son who's running around with an open pair of scissors. That's what he wanted. I took them away because I wasn't ready for the funeral. <laughs> I mean, I mean yeah, yeah, that's true. Who, who knows? You know, it's like, is this what they wanted? Maybe so. Is that what's good for them? Maybe not. Elton John at their funeral? No. <laughs> Elton John at their funeral is not what's good for them. All right, this next part is for Brian Gormley, my brother. Okay. I was like, Salina, Kansas. Salina, Kansas. Salina. Yeah, north of Wichita. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's he do there? He's a Catholic school teacher. He hates that hideous strength. He hates it? He hates it. Brian's amazing. He gets out of the silent planet. He gets Perry Landra. But that hideous strength with Merlin showing up, with all of the shenanigans, he does not get it at all. And I keep telling him, C.S. Lewis is blending Roman mythology, Greek-Roman mythology, with English mythology, King Arthur, Brown Table, with Christianity. He's reconciling them all. And technocentrism. Yes. With, uh, yes, the, the materialist magician. And weaving it all into a narrative that the great enemy of the human soul to be fought by the pen dragon is not just Satan at the end of time, but every country's soul is being fought for, you know, and in this case, it's against NICE, the National Institute, blah, 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 and, and the demonic powers being arrayed. He, the moment Merlin enters into the story, he, he's like, I don't get this at all. Great story. Merlin ruins it. Go. Well, you brother very <laughs> smart for, for one thing. Too smart for me. Uh, he is a smart guy. He's he is a, he's a smart, smart guy. guy. So... The first thing, is, although he does live in Salina, so that's Salina, a thing Kansas of all places. Yeah, you know, boy, man, Salina, you talk about a tough place to live. So, so, all right. So, first, first, first thing first. The three science fiction novels of C.S. Lewis are a meditation primarily on the fall. In mm-hmm. Lewis's very capacious mind, he is exploring how the fall might. He, he presumes a universe, right? This is the first yep, thing. Yep. Lewis presumes a universe, which is to say a single harmony of which the earth is the center of things, but which the fall then has radiating effects. Uh, and so you see that in the first two books in various ways, how the fall would affect other things. And so there's the peaceful deaths. Where, what, what, planet, what, what planet is that on? Where's peaceful deaths? Mars. I mean, I've forgotten this, right? I was, I was, you know. Yeah, I don't remember. So there's peaceful deaths. Yeah. But, but then that he is strength which is the longest one. It's, it's twice as long as the other two, right? I mean, I think it's probably twice it's as long. Roughly that, yeah. I mean, the, the C.S. Lewis scholars who listen to this thing are like, you idiot, you don't know anything about this. <laughs> one of them's in the ordinary, so he might. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, right. Uh, is, is the meditation on the fall in the technological world. Right, right. That, I mean, that, that's the way to understand it. Yeah. The whole point of that hidden strength is that the people who are involved in NICE are absolutely convinced of the rightness of their cause. Mm-hmm. And that the merger, I mean, if you haven't ever read, I'm sure no one, no, maybe you've read, but but I'm sure almost no one else has read. If you have never read, and you should absolutely read it, uh, the essay by George Grant. Y'all know who, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you, y'all know who George Grant is? Yeah. George Grant, uh, old, old Anglican world. George Grant was a, a philosopher from Halifax, uh, who taught at uh, King's College in Dalhousie in Halifax. Mm-hmm. And he uh, wrote uh, several books. One is called Technology and Empire. The other called Technology and Justice. 
And the first essay in Technology and Justice is about the is about the etymology of the word technology itself. Mm. And and what what Grant uh, describes there is how technos and logos come together, which 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 only the modern world actually actually brings together. Which is that the science of how do you do and the logic of things finally come together, which were which were not united before. There was all there was always technique. See, sure. there, there's always technique, but then there's always logos. Technology. Yeah. Uh, and so then C.S. Lewis, and that his strength, is a meditation on, on what does the fall look like in the regime of technology. Yep. In fact, everything that comes before it, which is all the mythology, the, 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 the Greco-Roman mythology, the English mythology, at which, which, of course, remember, what, what does everyone think? Well, we've, we've progressed out of that, right? Everyone thinks, oh, yes, of course, those idiots behind us, right. they used to believe in all this dumb stuff. But we, <laughs> we, we, would, never be, we would never be so, so deluded as to believe mm-hmm. in, in such mythology as that. And then Lewis puts, here's the myth you believe, the myth you believe mm-hmm. which is way worse. Way worse, yeah. the technological myth of the, uh, and the destruction of which is made possible by 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 modernity and modern science, mm-hmm. and the absolute uh, assurance uh, of the rightness of your cause. Because what, what what wasn't actually the case in in pre-modern myths was that absolute assurance, the absolute right. certainty. In fact, that's actually what most of uh, pre-modern uh, mythology is all about. Is actually we don't know. I mean, that's the great story in Acts, right? I mean, it's, I mean, everyone points to this, but it's, but it's actually true. The Athenians are like, ah, oh, crap. We got to have a god to everything. Yeah, yeah well, all right, we got them all. But wait a minute. What if we have like the, like we missed one? Yeah. Okay. Here's put, the altar to the unknown. Yeah, god. put that one up too, right? Like, it, it actually it, it's it's a it's an unknowing in a way by its very by its very yeah. you know, yeah. structure. Whereas the technology the the technological myth is not that. It's actually an absolute certainty. And we live – that's the world – actually, as it turns out, that's the world we live in, is the absolute certainty. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll give you an example which, which proves this. Please do. Um, there is, in the realm of Catholic sexual ethics, lots of, of things that are not entirely defined. Um, and that is because the church tells us that there has to be both the unitive and the procreative, right? Mm-hmm. But what do those words mean? Well, that's actually like what theologians and philosophers and, and ethicists are for to try to figure out what does the church mean by those things. And that lots of that is speculation, right? So you have the, the first order category, which is the church saying that all sexual acts between a man and his wife uh, must be procreative and unitive. Okay, great. And then the second order thing is a speculation on well, what, what actually constitutes those things. But very easily, uh, the, the speculation, people just say, this is the truth. Mm. I mean, you guys have all read these things, right? They just tell you. But then you like read one guy and what his opinion is. You read the other guy, like, well, those don't match. Well, who do, who do I follow? And, and, but, but it's two forms of speculation, but, but they are so easily articulated as the fact. Yeah, like Brian is a very big Grise school of natural law. There you go. <laughs> and, well, uh, only because he's from Cleveland. That's there. true. There you go. It's just it's a loyalty. They, I mean, that's it, right? I mean, well, and, and you know, can we circle back to Wendell Berry? Chapter 5, Unsettling of America, he starts with a quote from that hideous string. Can, all right, so now pause. On, yep. on the next time I get invited, it's only taken me, th- what, four years to be invited to this thing? Uh, that's <laughs> fine. Just start. Uh, on the next one that I'm invited to, we'll, we'll just do a Wendell Berry thing. 
Yeah. We'll do one yeah. of everything. All That's I read is World Ending Fire, which I love. Yep. Well, the the unsettling of America's place to start, and and, and yep. it's worth and it's worth this also. Yep. Agreed. I no, I just I have so much to read right now. <laughs> <laughs> so much to read. Yeah, that's right. That's fine. That's perfectly fine, actually. So, uh, so, so back to the point on 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 that his strength is that it's a meditation actually on the false certainty that the the yeah. technological world provides, and that and that actually the the insertion of the the mythological world into it is actually t- to actually provide a contrast. Yeah. In, my, in, in my opinion, I mean, this is my re- this is my reading of it, yeah. and that there's nothing as scary, there's nothing as demanding. I mean, we live. We live in it. I mean, yeah, we're living yeah, in it right. We're living in it right now. Yeah. I mean, uh, we lived through two years of what is the the right technique, but but not only the technique, but the gnosis. Like, what is the right knowledge? And because because the the gnosis is always right. Gnosis is not just a fact in your mind, but it also uh, always has a moral quality. The person that you are, and so then there then we all we all live through this. Is like, uh, are you wearing a mask? Mm-hmm. Well, then the wearing or the not wearing of a mask is not only about the information that you have, but the person that you are, yeah. uh, and that that is exactly what Lewis is pointing to. Yeah. Yeah. Is that you think, as an enlightened 20th century person, that these myths were bad? These myths were, you know, um, sort of pre-rational in some ways. Yeah. But what you're up against is something much darker. Uh, that's why. That's actually why I love those stories because I think, in some ways, that the the Chronicles of Narnia they're like, yes, okay, I know who the good guys are. I mean, it's almost too simple, right? Uh, there, there's not enough depth to it for my, for, and that's just my own taste. Now, when you read the hideous strength, like I wish to be Doctor Ransom, but I know who I am in that category, in that in that story. I'm the husband of the wife who, okay, she dabbled with Christianity in her youth. She comes back. She gets in line with Doctor Ransom. I'm the husband who lives for fame and approval, and it's that that notion. The keep the thing that keeps him prisoner is his desire to finally belong to the inner circle. And I know that that is my. And Lewis talked about that was him. That was his number one thing. It was like, no, no, no. Like I know if I just get into this elite, you know, if I just do this at Cambridge, if I just represent that, then I'll finally be a part of the 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 in crowd of the in crowd of the in crowd, and that's what this guy's achieving. And when he finally does achieve it, what does he find? It's satanic. It's stomp on this crucifix, look at the walls and how it's slightly abnormal. And then he's staring at it. He's like, no, there really is a thing called normal, and this ain't it. And then they're like, spit on this crucifix, stomp on it. And he's like, I I can't do that. Like, there, there is obviously a limit. But I, when I read those books, or that book in particular, I love Merlin showing up and killing everyone with wild animals. That was one of my favorite parts of all time. When they just overthrow everything. I love the gods, avatars visiting and shaking up the show at the very end of the story. But I, every time I read his part, I was like, I want to be Ransom, but I'm really, the, I can't even remember his name, but I'm like, I'm that dude. I'm that dude. The, there's a parallel character, by the way, um, to that. And one of my favorite authors, in Walker Percy, uh, in, um, in Love in the Ruins. Mm-hmm. Which was which? So he won the book of the he won the book of the year for the moviegoer. Yeah. But then yeah. he but then he wrote Love of the Ruins, which which is better. And the wife of the main character in Love of the Ruins, as very often is the case, also in Lancelot and another book I've forgotten, is an Episcopalian. Always Episcopalians. Because <laughs> remember, now see, see, see you you no 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 you laugh, 
But who who are the people in Lewis's books? They're all Anglicans, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. For, r- recall that when C.S. Lewis is writing characters in 20th century England, there is no one else but Anglicans. I mean, tr- I mean really. Right, sure. I mean, there sure. are Catholics. There are Methodists. It's basically Anglicans and socialists. <laughs> yeah, so angry. You know, so Anglicans yeah. and angry Anglicans. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> like, that's it. So in Love in the Ruins, the main character, his wife is an Episcopalian. Mm-hmm. And so what is his wife interested in? Y'all remember this? I never read it. Oh, oh you never read it. Oh, I've fam. never read any Walker person. Uh, we'll have to be, uh, you'll have to invite me back for another one. Uh, so we'll do Wendell Berry. We'll do Walker Percy. Well, we can do them Very all. similar, actually. They are similar. similar. Strange uh, respects. Eventually, we'll talk about the things we promised your vicar general we'd done. That's right. <laughs> so uh, his wife is is so interested in the esoteric. She was in the, she's a Virginia Episcopalian, but she becomes very interested in the esoteric. And so they hire like a yoga master. So I can't forget something like that. And, and what happens? She runs off with him, mm-hmm. and she becomes the prisoner of some you know whatever whatever weird vague crazy spirituality that, that that he you know is the the living tradition of which is it's Circle Lake it's an action treat no it's, it's a CrossFit box oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do hot yoga. Yeah. We're going to do cold yoga. And so one, one of the stories there in, in Love in the Ruins, you know, so Percy, Percy being a Catholic, I mean, there's no heroes. But there is a sense in which the perversion of the Episcopalians, that is to say the Anglicans, because of their law, because of the, the, fa- the failure, the rudeness of something greater, is that they're always susceptible to the absurd. Mm. And so what you see, exactly what you described, is something that, Seems so alluring, something greater, something deeper, something more mystical, right? And, but what does it turn into? Stomping on a crucifix, you know, ridiculous activities that you're like, this is what this is what gets me in the inner circle. And so actually, Percy uh, brings that that same motif uh, literarily into the, an American colony, very very similar. But it's all about technology. That's actually that's actually the the mode that unites it. You have to read that hideous strength with that lens. And if you don't read with that lens, then you're missing kind of, in my opinion, the point of the whole book. And that, that's, in some ways, that's Lewis's most mature because he, he's seeing what he's up against uh, in a way that I don't think you, you perceive in the, the Chronicles of Narnia. The one question our Patreon supporters asked me to say was, how do you reconcile being married with the duties of being a priest? I was like, you know, three and a half hours, we've talked about one liturgy question and a bunch <laughs> of stuff about funerals. You know, that, that's actually that's actually. An easy question to answer. Uh, celibate priests have hobbies. That is true. Almost every, almost, almost every celibate priest I know has a hobby of some kind that, mm-hmm. they, that, they, that they do. They go see movies. We're talking woodworking. We're talking jazzercise. We're talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's a broad spectrum. It's a broad uh, spectrum. It's a big tent church. My hobby is, is my children. Some people say to me, well, you know, you work so much. Uh, how, do you, you know, how do you balance those two things? But that's actually not, that's not a fair question. It's, it's a it's a. It's a fair question, but it's not actually a, a really a very good question. And the reason for that is because lots of dads, lots of men, work a lot. That's not that rare, mm-hmm. actually. And that every man who works outside the home, somewhere in the back of their mind, I hope, and or should be, is they're thinking that I'm doing this to provide for my family. Now, in our pride and our whatever, you know, all those things, we, we that, that make it very clouded very easily. That ought to be somewhere 
in there is like, I'm doing all this work so that I might provide a life for my family. But the life of priests is not like that. That's the one, that's the one difference is that I don't go to work every day. I don't go to the parish and do all things that I need to do and celebrate mass and hear confessions and answer the 5,000 emails and, and deal with all the personalities and all that stuff thinking, oh my, I'm, I'm providing for my family. I'm doing that for the life of the church. And then I come home and, and have to be a dad. That's the one difference, actually. The, the having to work a lot, that's I mean, lots. I mean, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't deserve any particular, like, credit or acclaim for, like, having a full-time job that's demanding and requires odd hours sometimes and whatever else. Um, but the one thing that's unique is, is just that, is, like, most fathers who, who, who go to work think, I'm doing this so that I can provide a life for my, for my kids, yeah. where I go to work thinking I'm working for the church. Uh, I'm working for the people of God that provides for us what it provides for us, and we're not destitute by any means. But that's not like there's no there's no career there's no career. If I, uh, the priesthood is not a career. I'm not you know, I'm not I'm not angling for the next promotion or mm-hmm. the the larger salary or something like that. Not with that attitude. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. But that's that's the biggest thing actually. It's just that is that I'm 35, right? So most men who are my age are like 10 years. I need to be ascending towards the top of my career. But the priest who celebrates Mass and who celebrates penance and, and baptism is already at his pinnacle. But, well, what else am I to do? <laughs> I mean, I can preach better. I can administrate the life of the parish better, which I need to do, of course. But in an essential way, like, I'm, I unite heaven and earth every day. <laughs> yeah, but how's your retirement plan? <laughs> yeah, right. Poor. poor. I mean, I, I am from Oklahoma, so I, I oh, Me and Brian have a couple books. We'd like to sit down and talk with you. I, I almost certainly will be living a double wide at the end of this, all this thing, but... Uh, well, you're still a pastor. You get this nice little little place out here, and it's like, honey, I, I got to retire. Uh, yeah, right. I didn't save anything. Did you Did you have a job, honey, the right. whole time? So we'll, we'll be, uh, you know, we'll be, living with the kids. We'll, we'll, we'll be back in western Oklahoma and uh, amongst the wind and the tumbleweeds. And uh, <laughs> it's a, an earnest question, but in some ways it's a question that doesn't perceive, on the one hand, the humanity of all priests, which is to say that, that, that no priest is on, is on duty at all the time. And on the other hand, it also doesn't recognize that it's not a career. You know, it's, it's not one of the, the career choices that you can take. And so, and so it's, it's, it's a unique thing that way. Uh, and, and it's something that lots of people, because it's peculiar, like to think about. But actually, it's a thing that I don't hardly like to, to talk about because I'm a Catholic priest. I've, I've been ordained as a priest and that I have the virtue and the power of priests. And so it's what it is. You know, we don't have this as much. Probably because of the way things have unfolded in our parish. But, you know, really when we're first starting, there, there are people who are like, well, I don't know if I can receive communion from a married priest. Really? Yeah, of course. That's weird. It is weird. But, but, but you, you know, you hear these kind of things. You're like, I can receive communion from a priest who's celebrating in Crocs, but not from a married priest. Yeah, right. And, but you're like, well, <laughs> yeah, right. I can receive communion from a priest who flirts with ortho, uh, uh, heresy, not intentionally, but he just doesn't know what the church teaches. Actually, I like that. Flirts with orthodoxy. I know, that's, right? I like that, that's really I flirt with orthodoxy. The other, day, the other day, I asserted that Christ actually had two wills, a human and a divine. Look at me. <laughs> didn't mean to. Didn't mean it to. was an accident. I didn't yeah. mean to. I read the gospel according to St. John. It happened. It came. It just came out. It just came out. And I, I couldn't come up with anything else, so I just had to say that was true. 
your answer is awesome. That's awesome. I'm a priest. That was the thing that happened. It doesn't happen as much now, but but it certainly happened for 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 a little while. I was like, well, but he's a married priest. And like, well, wait, 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 wait. You know, in the Catholic Church, a priest is a priest. You may not like that particular priest. We all have priests we don't like. I mean, I have priests I don't like. Uh, you guys, I'm sure do too. You're a professional Catholic, Mike. So you're like, you, is that weird? That you're a professional Catholic. That I'm a professional Catholic. I, I don't know if it's weird or not. I mean, you know. It's, Maybe, I don't know. That's it's not. It's not uncomfortable in this setting. <laughs> no, but the the funny thing. I, the funny I I make no account of it. But I make an account of it just because it's my bank account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. I mean, it helps you. That paper. No, so here's a funny story. I think you'll find funny. Um, so we're doing vacation Bible school right now, right? And we have uh, fifty kids in our Kingdom Builders program, which is fifth grade and sixth grade. So that's when they shift into youth ministry for our parish. And uh, <laughs> the funny thing is, both my daughters are in that. And so is Therese. She's uh, Brian's daughter. And so at, uh, the, the first day was on holy matrimony. And so the woman who is, who is our kingdom builders leader, youth minister, she's married to the high school youth minister, Sammy. Oh, you met Sammy and PJ, of course. And so she's talking and she's showing photos of her wedding and blah, blah, blah. And she wants to contrast it and compare it to the priesthood. And she said, so, for instance, uh, or she goes, does anyone know any priests? You know, what are their names? You know, kids are shouting out different names. Father Tom, Father Jesse, Father David, Father Matthew. And then my Cecilia goes, Father Fletcher. And, and Sammy starts laughing. <laughs> Sammy starts laughing. She goes, yeah, Father Fletcher, he's up at this church. Because a lot of kids are like, who? And Therese is like, oh, yeah. And, and then, like, maybe a minute later, Sammy goes, now, priests don't get married in the Catholic Church. They live lives of celibacy. And then Cecilia's like, <laughs> and she raises her hand. And Sammy can't not call on her because she's my daughter and I'm her boss, right? So she, Sammy was telling me, like, I kind of felt compelled to call on her. And so she goes, yeah, Cecilia. And she goes, um, Father Fletcher's married, and he has a bunch of kids. <laughs> yeah. Put your hand down. Yeah, put your damn hand down right now. We have the exception to the rule, yes. <laughs> Eight miles away, we have the exception to the rule. Thank you. You are no longer invited to talk about these matters. So the funny thing was, I came into the youth room about maybe 30 minutes later, and Shannon comes over and she tells me this funny story. Well, I have two women waiting to ask me, who is this insane priest who would dare to be married? Is this allowed in the church? Does the church know that he's married? Like this whole thing, and they, have, they just never heard of it. And so I was like, yeah, you know, up until I'm... 1100 bc or eight bc listen there's a lot of levites right and uh no and so i I go through kind of like the history and this woman was just looking at me and she was like never heard of this but i'll trust you for now i'm like please do it's a thing you can google it there is a really interesting thing about this i'm I'm happy to explicate the the church's teaching on on celibacy for priesthood and and the the higher good of that uh i'm a catholic priest and i have no i have no qualms with that at all priest who is celibate which is the by the way the majority of priests in, in the catholic church that if they live the priesthood well are living a better life and a higher life and a more virtuous life than the life that i'm living i'm quite happy to say that on the other hand i didn't know that there was better life possible uh when i was growing up in rural oklahoma i, I can assure you that uh i didn't meet any celibate people uh the whole time that i was growing up and, especially in grades 9 through 12 yeah that's right <laughs> and so I'm, I'm very prepared for that and by my boys i have three boys so far three boys I don't know. They all run close, together. Close enough. I have multiple boys. They're all Catholics. Uh, if they want me priest of celibate, then I'll teach them the good of that and the higher good of that. So, all right. So that's that. The second thing is, is that what is a priest? Okay, what is a Catholic priest? A Catholic priest is a man. Has to be a man who has had hands laid upon him 
by a bishop for the ministry of the church to be a person who consecrates the Eucharist, who performs baptisms and hears confessions and does, and does the other sacramental rites of the church. That's a priest. The question of whether a man is married or not is actually a secondary question to the question of, is this person a priest? Mm-hmm. And that to the extent that we get that wrong is the extent that we actually don't understand the nature of the priesthood. It isn't, it isn't a question of whether celibacy is, is the better thing. Right? I've already established that. That's clearly the case. Christ is celibate, and that is the normative thing for the priesthood, and that all people who, who can do that, I mean, as he himself says, and St. Paul reiterates, should do that. But the question of what is a priest is a question of, well, do we actually believe that the, that the church knows how to make priests? And that's actually a much more simple question. Uh, whether I turn up at my own parish, which I'm, the, you know, I'm responsible for, I turn up at any other Catholic parish. The fact that I'm married is is of no account of whether I can actually make Christ present on the altar or not. And so we, we've actually got to work pretty hard, I think, to rearrange our thinking about that. Now we don't have to work all that hard because there's not that many of people like me. I mean, we don't. We, you know, there's, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not asking people to like say, "Oh, well, my gosh, the ordinary is going to take over everything." Well, this it's sweeping the nation. That's right. Um, <laughs> but but actually, in the places which the ordinary exists, you guys. I mean, you guys. When I leave, you can tell everyone on the who's listening still. The reality of this is that uh, you know I don't I don't flaunt my the my married state to the world. You wouldn't know it unless you knew. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I I, it's it's not a it's not a thing because I'm a Catholic. Catholic priest, and so the primary way in which basically, I mean, you know, basically everyone in the world relates to me, other than my parents, who despise the fact that I'm a Catholic priest, is as a Catholic priest. And so I don't, I don't advertise as like the the first. So you know, I'm married. I have five children. Look, I get it. I get it. I might have more <laughs> on the way. You know, I might have more someday. Uh, I don't, I don't do that because that's that's not my goal. And that's not the goal of anyone who's a married priest, I don't think. I, I hope that's not the, the goal of anyone who's a married priest. On the other hand, the people who are like, I guess, like, well, wait, what, what do you think priesthood is? Priesthood is not this person is married or not married. Priesthood is, has this person actually been ordered to the sacrament of orders? That's the question. Either they have or they haven't. If they have, then they're a priest. If they haven't, then they're not. That requires a kind of refinement for us. And I, I say that you know, all the while knowing that, like, you know, the celibacy of the priesthood not only is it a higher calling, is also just like a sort of characteristic mark for Catholicism, yeah. right? And I and I know that's true, right? And I know that people are like I, I understand. I'll tell you a different, and I mean, you can just like delete all this part. But you know, like one of the things we've done in presentation and in the ordinary is the the restoration of the order of the sacraments. Yes, which I'm entirely in favor of. Yep, entirely. Uh, Confirmation completes baptism, says Catechism of the Catholic Church. So we're going to postpone it until you're 85. Yeah, right. <laughs> and jump through 37,000 hoops. Mm-hmm. The Reformed Protestants over at uh, Reformed Baptist Alderbridge Church, they might be right that it is a Pelagian system <laughs> yeah, for right. confirmation. To receive the gifts of God, you must perform these 75 works. Uh, can you please uh, uh, put those on an affidavit and have them signed yeah. by a notary? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. We don't care about that. Of course, so a presentation, we've, you know, we're seeking to restore the sacramental order. But what that means then is that priests priest ends up doing a lot of confirmations by delegation of the bishop. That has sort of distressed people in our parish because lifelong Catholics, in their mind, think confirmation equals bishop. Like, that's just, that's just yeah. the thing. From a theological point of view, like, well, no. Well, what is the, like, lived experience of Catholic people? Well, yes. 
And so it's actually an important thing, actually, to hold those two things together to say, I, I understand that there's this theological reality that we're trying to teach you, but that's not your life. That's not your experience. And we've got to be very careful about you associate confirmation with the bishop coming and all these things. And in the same way that we stylize First Communion, right? Like, what is the law of the church about First Communion? The law of the church is that any person who is at the age of, the, of, of reason and who has confessed their sins and who wants the sacrament, therefore can receive the sacrament. That's, that's the law of the church. So you got a kid who's seven years old. You take them to confession once, and then you line them up for, confe- for communion. They've made their first communion. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what we want as Catholic. Well, what, what do we want? What we want is for them to be in the procession, to hold their, their baptismal candle, to get to have the picture and wear all their, all their things, right? You want that. I don't want that. Yeah, well, no, I don't. No, I don't want that. No, I don't want that either. I don't want it either. But the majority of people want that, and that's fine. That's that's, that's Catholic culture. Yeah. And so, in the same way, like confirmation is like the bishop comes, the guy with the pointy hat comes, and he, he and he does the thing. And so, by extension, then like the married priesthood is like that's not Catholic culture. Go back to Byzantium. That's, and, and so, like, I understand that, actually. And I, and, and I have to just, for myself and for my priesthood and for my family and for my parish, it's like, we just have to be willing to say, okay, like, that's not, in some ways, the norm in Catholic culture. We accept it. And we know that that's different. And I don't flaunt that. And I don't berate people about it. I have to be prepared to say it. Well, I'm a Catholic priest. And so, like, what do you think about priesthood? And what do you think about my ability to actually celebrate the sacraments? But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, I get that. Like you're used, you know, your your normal to experience of Catholicism is priests are celibate people, and I don't I don't mean to change that as a normative mm-hmm. reality. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on four hours now, so good night.